have the new product at InfoWarsLife.com, BioTrue Selenium. We've had so many requests over the years for selenium, and just recently, we were able to source a certified organic bioavailable selenium from mustard seed extract. When you take selenium in the body, it actually benefits the detoxification systems in your body. It helps balance the thyroid gland. It helps detoxify. Selenium is another one of those absolute must-haves. The highest concentration of selenium is in the thyroid gland, but it's actually used all over the body. As a matter of fact, there's 25 genes in the body that are directly dependent upon selenium. So it really is a all-around nutrient that everybody really needs. I'm taking it now every day. This is so key. BioTrue Selenium is the product, the best selenium that we could bring you. We believe it's the best out there at a very, very low price. Exclusively available at InfoWarsLife.com or by calling toll-free 888-253-3139. Attention patriots, tired of the tyranny and crime in the sanctuary cities? Flee the city and seek refuge in the American Redoubt. FleeTheCity.com. Move to the freedom of Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming. FleeTheCity.com. FleeTheCity.com. You've made a serious investment in protecting yourself and your family. You've purchased the gun, the ammunition, the training, and even secured a license to carry in your state. You know the Constitution and don't believe you should have to pay for a right that you already have, as written in the Second Amendment, but you are law-abiding. Now you are considering the legal defense options you should have if you ever have to use a firearm. Self-Defense Fund is a comprehensive litigation membership backing you on appeals, legal expenses, court costs, and more, up to $1 million per incident and unlimited attorney costs per member. Discover SelfDefenseFund.com for yourself. Any weapon, any state, any time. Are you sick and tired of just being sick and tired? Are you sick and tired of being told that you were somehow privileged? Are you sick and tired of being told to shut up, both at work and at school? Are you sick and tired of panhandlers pestering you whenever you go out to shop or to eat? Are you sick and tired of jobs that never come and an economy that never goes anywhere? Are you sick and tired of having to take orders from incompetence? Are you sick and tired of movies and television shows that depict a white man as a bumbling incompetent? Are you sick and tired of a government that welcomes non-white immigrants and exposes you to diseases? If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, then the American Freedom Party is for you. Connect with us, theamericanfreedomparty.us. Once again, the American Freedom Party dot U.S. Now's your chance to get the last of the Resolution Radio Blood Teas. Only a few left available before we try to do a reorder. This has been a high-selling item, and we really appreciate everyone's support in getting this shirt and showing their pride as well as showing their heritage. Nothing counts more than blood. Get yours today from Resolution Radio. Only $25 plus $5 shipping and handling. It really helps the network improve and you really get a great product to showcase what you truly believe in. Nothing counts more than blood. Only from Resolution Radio at ResolutionRDO.com. Send check, money order, or well-concealed cash to Sonny Thomas at P.O. Box 27, Springboro, Ohio, 45066. That's Sonny Thomas at P.O. Box 27, Springboro, Ohio, 45066.
You're listening to Resolution Radio. ResolutionRDO.com And now, back to Fashion Nation, heard only on the TRS Radio Network. Hello and welcome back. Hour 2 here at FTN. And if you listened last weekend, you'll recall we did a deep dive on Sammy Davis Jr. getting into the Rat Pack era of American music. And we're back this week with another one of these looks at uh, famous people you've heard of. You've probably listened to their music, but you probably don't know. In fact, I would venture to guess you definitely don't know all of the stuff that has been researched and uncovered here. So we're looking this week, Jazz, Frank Sinatra, are we not? Yeah, fly me to the Jews, <laughs> let me wail upon their wall. Yeah, he, I mean, I knew that Sinatra was a guy who was very, he would always defend black people. Like, the, that was the thing that sort of casually paying attention beyond just listening to the music, because I do like Frank Sinatra's music. Um, you sort of hear the narrative, uh, like, oh, he got beat up for being Italian, like they in his neighborhood. He that you'd hear, get the wop, and he'd get his ass beat, and you know that that was this this reason for standing up for people of all races and just gay shit like that. And that's the extent of of things that I heard about him. I didn't really hear much, and of course, his associations with the mafia is sort of these sort of normie tier sort of observations that might trickle through. But until you do a full and thorough deep dive on this guy and you find out, like, you thought Sammy Davis was bad. I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty insane. And, and I started to think, too, given what we know uh, and given the associations that are with these guys, and we're going to find that out here shortly, you start to wonder, not that, not that Sammy Davis Jr. Was, was, was secretly based or that Sinatra was secretly based or whatever, but that these were more normal people who, especially later in Sinatra's life, you start to see a pattern where it's just, it's either the guy becomes such a philo-Semite where he literally falls in love with the Jewish people so much that he wants to become one himself, and it devotes his entire life's work to that, um, and sort of doesn't do anything for Italians at all. They love him, but he doesn't really do anything for Italians, Italian community at all. It's kind of like you start to have to ask yourself questions about Sammy Davis and Sinatra specifically, and you'll you'll see some instances where it's like, oh well, why did he do that? Like, why? What would have what would have compelled him to do something like that? And why, when he steps out of line, does do things not happen to him when you would expect them to? But I want to sort of open the Sinatra bit with this <laughs> this audio that I found, and this sort of sets the tone. This is um. This is sort of collection. This is a montage. This is a Frank montage of him not singing. You're usually not used to hear him, hearing him not sing unless he's you're listening to one of the live albums where he's like talking uh, at the sands in between each track or something. But here he is, Frank Sinatra with uh, Shalom Shalom. The young people of Israel will help shape the coming half century. And I, for one, want to see them attain the know-how and the skills that they need. Look, fellas, religion makes no difference. Except maybe to a Nazi or somebody as stupid. <laughs> Friends, what happens to Israel tomorrow depends upon what we do for its children today. 
And you and I can help by giving our fullest support to this great cause. Shalom, 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 shalom. Shalom, 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 shalom. And that was kind of this guy's life. I mean, he he did all kinds of PR for Israel, raised millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars, gave much of his own fortune uh, away to Israeli causes. And I just want to sort of start with this anecdote because, and I want to do these in befores too as well, like that, you know, it was Americanism that ruined Frank Sinatra or it was, you know, some, some time later in his life, they, they got something on him and he was really a, he was an okay guy involved in the Italian mafia. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he became very philosemitic. That doesn't seem to be the case. He seemed to have a natural affinity for that. And then what you could argue is that somewhere along the way, they took that natural affinity and they said, now nah, you're going to be the official spokesman for this shit because we made you popular. We made your music popular. We made you a star. And now you're going to give it back and you're going to do it no matter what we say. And so I can see some element of that there as well. But one of the things that I like to do with these deep dives, and it's sort of a really basic thing that, that you do. And, and I was laughing with a good friend, Hoob, about this because it's a really fun trick if you take two jewish names and put them in quotes and put them into google to get the associations it's amazing if you just start (laughs) combining different people and so whenever we sort of look at people from this era and you know that they've been associating with uh other people that we've covered such as roy Cohn and arthur finkelstein and the usual crowd it's amazing sometimes things pop up now i've never had anything happen like this before where I cross-reference Frank Sinatra with Roy Cohn. Now, the problem with doing research on Sinatra specifically is because he was such a popular uh, musician, you get sort of an overload of of things in the algorithm about his career and his music and all this stuff. So you sort of have to sift through a lot of bullshit to try to find some interesting things. But one thing that occurred that had never happened before is there only seems to be, as far as I can tell... One mention ever anywhere of Frank Sinatra and Roy Cohn together, but it's in such an intimate situation, (laughs) not intimate in the way that you think, don't worry. Uh, And definitely if you've seen the cover art by now, it's definitely not that that's sort of some hyperbole there, but uh, it's, it's such a specific situation in a specific set of circumstances. It's surprising that there aren't a dozen other scenarios where you hear about these guys together, but you don't at all. And, you know, we're going to find out today that Nixon, uh, Nixon, um, Sinatra, like Sammy Davis Jr., just suddenly went from being like must civil rights Democrats to being like Nixon law and order guys. Amazing how that happened. But it starts to make sense when you read accounts like this. So Roy Cohn and Frank Sinatra, this is from the L.A. Times, 1988 in New York, Roy Cohn's favorite restaurant was the devastatingly expensed Le Cirque. I don't even know if it still exists. Those who can afford its swank atmosphere are attracted also by the rich French food. But as his eccentricities surfaced more strongly than ever toward the end of his life, Cohn took to sending Le Cirque's waiters scurrying for meals of bumblebee tuna. (laughs) But this is kind of funny. Roy was just impossible in some ways. He had this habit of eating off of other people's plates with his hands, even in the fanciest places. Once, when Cohn reached his fingers to remove food from the plate of Frank Sinatra, Sinatra's bodyguards are supposed to have moved forward protectively until Sinatra waved them off. 
It's kind of funny. I mean, <laughs> think of a scenario where you'd be sitting next to Frank Sinatra would be sitting in close quarters with Roy Cohn, like <clears throat> gay GOP guy. This would have been in the 70s when this happened. And, you know, lawyer for Donald Trump at this time, um, deeply involved in organized crime, heavily connected with Meyer Lansky and, and a number of others, Sinatra and Cohn. And you have this this gay sitting next to you in a restaurant like five star Michelin star like high end restaurant. <clears throat> and he reaches across the table and pay, pulls, pulls food off of your plate with his hands. <laughs> and yeah. Sinatra is just like, no, nah, no, nah, it's just it's Roy. Let him go. He's fine. <laughs> Not even the courtesy of like using the salad fork or something. No. <laughs> or even asking. And that's the funny thing. It's you have to wonder what these bodyguards were thinking. If these bodyguards were just like Italian, like Goomba types, and they see this as as a disrespect, which it is, especially in that culture. And Sinatra, you know, he just waves him off. <laughs> and for Roy Cohn, he didn't I mean, he doesn't think twice about this. No. This is Sinatra at this point is like his property. This is just like uh like an investment. That they've made. He has every right to do this yeah. to Sinatra in his mind. Yeah, he can do he can do whatever he wants. And this is another part of the article. It's it's not it's not related to Sinatra, but I couldn't resist putting this in here because it's so fucking funny. Uh, this is from later in that same 1988 piece. Roy Cohn's vanity was legendary. To continue to attract his stable of young, beautiful men, Cohn had five facelifts. The result, as he neared death, was his. <laughs> Typical grainy complexion that made Cohn look like a specimen from the Natural History Museum. <laughs> Yet, writes Von Hoffman, he insisted on donning his orange tuxedo and demanding parties, parties, parties. Von Hoffman, one week of living Roy Cohn's life and I would have killed myself. I think most people would. <laughs> and he eventually did. Uh, eventually did. Oh, man, it's so funny. Roy Cohn told everybody that he had cancer and it was just AIDS. <laughs> Yeah. Like if the AIDS didn't get you first. Yeah, literally gay AIDS. But now here's where things get interesting. And it's important that we mentioned a key facet of Sammy uh, Davis Jr.'s life. And I've seen, I've noted, this is something that was like, ah, I remember, I remember this. Um, not this, well, we'll just see how this unfolds. And so we know a lot about Frank Sinatra, you know, the singer, the actor, whatever. We'll touch upon some of this, but the purpose of this deep dive is to talk about his specific relationship uh, with the Jews and civil rights and, you know, the Finkelthink of the day. Um, now, he participated in Hollywood protests and productions that supported Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, he was an avid supporter for the state of Israel, both its establishment when it was still Palestine. He was working toward this. Uh, he actively fundraised for Israel bonds, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, the Simon Weisenthal Center, very much involved in Holocaust stuff. And he helped establish two intercultural centers in Israel, which bear his name. Uh, his recordings have also were, were for a time banned by the Arab League and by uh, Lebanon. But Sinatra himself is not Jewish. Um, he was he was the only child, interestingly enough, born to an Italian Catholic family in Hoboken. Um, but now this the sort of notion that Sinatra got Jewed up later in life. Nah, not true. Uh, Sinatra, because his mother worked um, also odd for this period of time, one child and working. It's like, wow, very, very liberal. But his mom was like a Democratic um, organizer, like, you know, at this period of time. So it's also not surprising that she would have been working and leaving her child in the care of their neighbor, 
Jew, Mrs. Golden, who not only doted on Frank Sinatra, but fed him and taught him Yiddish. Now, here's where things get really interesting. Um, This is from biographer Robin Swan. He seems to have been a lonely little boy, and Golden offered him much-needed attention on which he could rely. So think about the psychological aspect of mother not home, mother at work all the time, left in the care of this old uh, Yenta who's feeding him apples and teaching him Yiddish and teaching him basically to be a Jew, right? I mean, for all intents and purposes, and you'll see this sort of unfold later on. Um, Mrs. Golden also gave little Frank Sinatra a small mezuzah necklace, just like the one that Eddie Cantor, and I forgot to say his name. I got to make it a big apology, James. We said Eddie Cantor, and I was doing the also known as with just about everybody else. We got to do it with him because this is just insane. Eddie Cantor? You think, wow, just a regular, you know, Anglo-sounding name. No, Isidore Itzkowitz. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Real name, Isidore Itzkowitz. But he's the guy that gave Sammy Davis Jr. a mezuzah to wear around his neck. And Frank Sinatra wore this chain around his neck for the rest of his life. And if you look closely, I've seen Sinatra wearing those like open collar, you know, like the uh, the Robert De Niro style collar from Casino with like the shit spread like all the way to the fucking edge of your shoulder and the, you know, three buttons open. I've seen that necklace on Sinatra. I've seen him wearing it. And it's just that, you know, it's a necklace with the mezuzah, which is just like a little a little stick it looks like on the necklace that's what that is and so yeah dude for his whole life i mean just incredible yeah and you think if you don't know any better you think it's just a piece of like flashy jewelry right that oh sinatra the mob guy you know this is what he's wearing but yeah on further inspection it's not that at all yeah just a just a piece of jewelry right and so after mrs golden passed away Sinatra purchased $250,000 worth of State of Israel bonds in her memory. I love Mrs. Golden. She's so great. Um, <laughs> Frank owned the State of Israel. He, he owned. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's how that goes. Yeah. And he, uh, he, he got heavily involved in, in sort of communist politics early on in his life, too, because that's the kind of Jews that he was surrounded by. And But he was also doing Zionism, like hardcore Zionism uh, as well. And it's really a distinction without much of a difference. It's obviously the tool that was used as a bludgeon for that. And in 1942, uh, now this is, this is a big press X to doubt. The way that they frame this is that there were reports of Nazi brutality against Jews reaching the United States. When in reality, it's like, no. Someone told Sinatra that he needs to start going on a PR campaign to promote Jews in a positive light in the U.S. for Americans who were doubting that we should even be in the war at all. And Sinatra ordered, listen to this, look at, look at this subversion here. Sinatra ordered hundreds of medallions struck with an image of St. Christopher. Why? If you're worried about Jews being brutalized by Nazis, allegedly— then why would you strike an image of St. Christopher? Oh, because you want Catholics to be in on this. Image of St. Christopher on one side, and the Star of David on the other. And he had them delivered to U.S. soldiers stationed in Europe, as well as friends, business associates, policemen, and who had provided uh, him security at his concerts. So, yeah, James, I mean, we think that's all about. And it's like, here, St. Christopher is going to protect you, also Star of David. Love, love Frank. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, hey, maybe maybe 
jazz he was trying to convert the jews maybe this was a roundabout way of, yeah. of the jews would see the star of david and see saint christopher and think i need to stop being jewish <laughs> yeah well that's the funny thing is frank sinatra though he was raised catholic uh you know it it you'll well you'll hear here in a second he's really it really doesn't make it a prominent part of his uh his uh you know his identity in fact he makes judaism the most prominent part of his identity in 1943 he joined the national tour of we will never die a four-month six-city dramatic pageant staged by jew ben hecht to focus public attention on the holocaust of course this is revisionism at its very best because there was no holocaust going on and no one was calling it a holocaust nobody talked about the holocaust back then so all this was mm -hmm. was a pro-jew like, you know, you will not kick us out or something like gay tour. Of course. Yeah. They were like being a, like a philosemitic, like plight of the underdog, ginning up popular support yes. for the for the war, which was still unpopular in the U.S. And and making this about defense of persecuted peoples. Exactly. Yeah. Defense about persecuted. And that's that's really exactly what it was. 1944. Sinatra insisted on a friend. Now, this is where it's like, wow, bro, he really takes his Catholicism seriously. Ready for this? Sinatra insisted his Jewish friend, Manny Sachs, served as godfather at his son's baptism. He's really doing the conversion bit hard. And I guess there were some priests back then who were like, nah, we're not, we're not doing that. This is pre-Vatican II. He's like, they were not doing that. But it's amazing how easily Sinatra was able to find just another Catholic church where Manny Sachs could be the godfather, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of amazing that this is, yeah. Totally. And he names his son. His middle his son's middle name is well, who's now dead, Frank Sinatra Jr. Frank Emmanuel Sinatra, named after Manny Sachs. He literally names his only son after a Jew. Not his dad, not his grandfather, not some Catholic saint, a Jew. Emmanuel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He doesn't even make him the second because I think Frank Sinatra was the name of his father as well. So he could have had Frank Sinatra the second, but yeah. he, he gave him the first name, but didn't uh, didn't carry over his name. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Could have been the third. His son could have been the third. Yeah. Nah, we're not doing that, though. And then 1945, Sinatra starred in The House I Live In, which is a 10-minute short film about anti-Semitism and religious tolerance that nobody cared about at the time, but Hollywood decided to give it in an Academy Award. <laughs> Like, literally nobody was interested in seeing this at all. It was like a 10-minute short, and nobody gave a shit about it. But they gave themselves an award for doing this. Um, and so in the film, Sinatra is playing himself on a smoke break and comes out of the back of the theater, and there are a bunch of boys, uh, white boys, who are taunting a Jew. And Sinatra goes on this long thing about explaining to them that we're all Americans and that one's good, one's blood is as good as the other. I you can go watch this on your own. It's only ten minutes long, and actually, it's the middle five minutes that's that's uh, that's pretty interesting. But where he, you know, there, there's boys chasing this Jew through the streets, and you know, Sinatra stops them, and you know, they're, they're the little boy, the, the the group of boys, the gang of boys is, you know, they they put the words in their mouths. He's like, "Why are you chasing down this kid?" And one of the kids is like, "Cause he's a dirty," <laughs> and then Sinatra cuts him off, and. Uh, he like then he's like because we don't like his religion, and then they make it about the religion, and it's like no that's that's not why. And the little Jew who's like you know in a corner he's like I've lived in this neighborhood as long as you have, and it's like 
yeah okay guy and they just make it but they the funny thing is about this film is they don't tell you that the kid is jewish they only insinuate that he is i mean he's got those what do you call those those little little like curly sprigs of hair like down the side um and he's dressed in black i don't know what those are called i can't i used to know what they're called the the uh the the locks that they have you know what those are yeah, this Shylock. Shylock. I mean, maybe yeah. not Shylock. Yeah. Is but, that what they're called, actually? <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But he has little ones. They look like a billy goat with these little things. Um, but you have to really look for them because it's a black and white film. And they otherwise don't say he's Jewish. They just sort of do it through innuendo. Oh, he has a different religion. We don't like him because of his religion. And they also don't address the religion of the boys who are chasing him, who are all white, and of course. And they, they, make, it, they make it about religion. And, you know, Sinatra does this whole thing about, like, well, you know, Jews are fighting in World War II right now, and I'm sure they're your father and some of those, some of these boys, um, their fathers are in World War II. And he's just like, yeah, you know, like, I'm sure, you know, your father probably needed a blood transfusion, and he probably got it from a Jew. Do you think that Jew saved his life? And, like, just this stupid, like, teachable moment bullshit. And then Sinatra sings them a song, <laughs> which is written by one Jew and a goy, and it had, uh, you know, this is 1945, and the, the one of the lyrics from the song is all races and religion that's america to me <laughs> 1945 <laughs> so they yeah, yeah yeah and Library of congress has comments disabled on this youtube video if you try to go watch it absolutely for a reason yeah. i'm sure yeah and at the end the little boys like pick up the kid's satchel of books and hand it to him and and they're all friends and yeah and he's just one of the boys just like you just one of the boys yeah and this is really the kickoff they because they had to take this pre-world war ii um, justified uh, counter-Semitism that existed that we've talked about quite a bit and we're going to talk about a lot more in the future. Um, and they had to, you know, they, they lead America into a very unpopular war. A lot of people are against it. And then they sort of do this kumbaya stuff. And But they make it about, because I think they, they have to make it about, no, they, don't, they don't point out that this kid is a Jew. Like most people will pick that up. But they don't want to specifically say, like, Frank Sinatra, no part in that video does he ever say, why are you picking on this child because he's Jewish? Are you picking on his religion because he's Jewish? Oh, he's a Jewish. No, they never say that. Never. Why? Why don't they mention it? Because they knew that there would be an immediate visceral reaction to, wait, why are we framing these, like, this gang of kids is bad and this Jew kid is good? It's sort of just supposed to be very subtle, very light. And then all races and religion, that's America to me, with like Frank singing the song. And it's like, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Sinatra was involved in before the war and after the war and promoting the foundation of Israel and, and everything else. Now, Sinatra himself has said he despised people who referred to Jews, blacks, or any other ethnic group in a derogatory manner. Now, of course, he just lumps everybody in together, and this has always been the Jewish shot. This is why they do multiculturalism. Sinatra said, when I was a kid and someone called me a dirty little guinea, there's only one thing to do, break his head. Let anyone yell wop or Jew or nigger around us. We taught them not to do it again. Once at a party, all five foot seven and a half inches and weighing 155 pounds, Sinatra punched a newspaper man for calling out another guest. Uh, the guest apparently was the brother of uh, band leader Benny Goodman. Uh, I guess this guest called him a Jew bastard and Sinatra King Cuck Sinatra had a drink, hit him in the head, and had another drink, and hit him in the head again as he was being carried out. 
Uh, so, wow, based, bro. Real tough guy punching Nazi. When Palm Springs Cemetery official declared that he could not arrange for the burial of a deceased Jewish friend over the Thanksgiving holiday, because I guess Jews have to be buried in three days or like something bad happens, I guess. Sinatra raged <laughs> that he would punch him in the nose and that if he was too old, he would punch his son in the nose, too. Just like, wow. It's like, hey, bro, it's Thanksgiving. Thursday, November. I don't care if some Jew dies on Wednesday. We're having holiday. And like Sinatra has the bulls to go and punch people in the face because they can't schedule a funeral. It's like, bro, like the chutzpah on this guy. Yeah, unless you rearrange your entire schedule and life around the needs, like the esoteric religious beliefs of the volcano, volcano demon worshippers, I'm going to knock your lights out, bucko. Yeah, and he sort of exuded this sort of like tough guy persona, and it's it's not it's a persona that's not unlike the way that Trump sort of carries himself out. Like Trump would have come of age in the era of the Rat Pack. He would have come of age actually around these guys and people like them. He was around Sinatra. He was around Nixon. He was around this era. And, you know, Trump's sort of inflection in the way that he talks and this sort of tough guy, whatever, it's the way that Sinatra carried himself. Like, they had to appeal to the masculine white male, the very cool guy smoking cigarettes, getting broads and everything else. But I love Jews and multiculturalism was the message that was sort of mixed into the bowl there. And, um, you know, he did this all the time. He helped individual Jews in trouble. Uh, he got the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas to agree that Sammy Davis Jr. should be allowed to walk through the foyer of the hotel where he was playing. And Sammy says, I don't know whether he did it because I was black or because I was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, given yeah. the evidence we have now, it's yeah, probably the latter. Probably the latter. Well, it's just the perfect. It's like. You know, it's like a buy one, get one free, right? Bogo. It's like a the perfect solution. It's like I'm black and Jewish and I get to, you know, he's like, he's black and Jewish and you're going to do it, right? So there was a time when Frank also heard that the Jewish actor Lee J. Cobb, of course, Cobb's real name is Leo Jacoby. It's like and Jews look at these, you know, they look at their names and it's like, how can I anglis? Oh, Cobb. I'll just do, I'll just be a Cobb. Um, he was seriously ill and couldn't afford to go to a prestigious hospital. Sinatra didn't even know Cobb, but he had seen him in a film, 12 Angry Men, and admired his work. <laughs> Quite suddenly. Of course. It, what? Go ahead. Oh, of course. 12 Angry Men, another Jewish uh, piece of fiction where <laughs> I think we've talked about this film before. Yeah. Or the shot of that is these angry white men are going to convict this young black for no reason but thankfully, Henry Fonda's there to be the voice of reason and, and talk these racists down from doing a lynching. Yeah, so when the avatar for that white subversion is in the hospital and doesn't have any money, um, this guy heard that he was being transferred to Jewish Cedar sinai Hospital and that someone had instructed America's leading cardiologist to treat him. And he was told the bill is being paid by Frank Sinatra. Not just that... Frank gave him an apartment in which he could convalesce. Wow, just bends over backwards. How many Italians did you help out in your life, Frank? Did you help out anyone? Did you even go to Italy to help anyone? Did you did you help anybody in poverty? No, you didn't. You just did this for Jews. Over and over and over again, he does it. But what's funny about this, James, is for a guy who is so philo-Semitic, for a guy who just bends over backwards to do all these things for Jews, it's kind of funny that you would need to pay a doctor $40,000 to have yourself declared medically unfit 
for World War II service. Maybe it's because you're five foot seven and only weigh one fifty five. Maybe you're a pussy and you didn't want to go. Maybe you want to overcompensate and like do all this Jewish fundraising and Foundation of State of Israel, like whatever. But he apparently paid a doctor uh, to declare that he was medically unfit. Now he claims that it was because he had a punctured eardrum, which would have not been enough to have caused him to not serve like a punctured eardrum. It's like, all right, bro, you can still hear out of your other ear. You can do a myriad of other aspects of the service. Now, again, I'm only taking this position because he's the Philo Semite. It's like, why wouldn't you want to go to world war two? I mean, you can sort of understand maybe uh, an ethnic German, not wanting to go fight his own people, but Frankie, he's been loving the Jews since he was born. He's got that, you know, that little mezuzah around his neck and he's come, he's paying people $40,000 in 1940 to get out of service, but a punctured eardrum wouldn't have been enough. So he had that doctor also say that he had psychological issues <laughs> that would get him out of the draft, and he got out of it. And this actually, these rumors persisted throughout his lifetime and uh, even hurt his career a little bit in the 1940s. Well, how do you save your failing career? Oh, God, uh, Frank Sinatra, you, you were a draft dodger? Well, look, we, can, uh, we have some cash that we need to smuggle. <laughs> uh, to help with uh, the foundation of Israel in 1948. You know, you could really help us out with that, so why don't you get busy? I didn't even know about the draft dodger shit, did you? I I didn't. But you compare that to other people in Hollywood at the time, people like John Wayne, even the aforementioned Henry Fonda. These are guys who who were concerned about what service would do for their career and taking time off to serve, but they still really wanted to go and do it. And I think in John Wayne's case, he wanted to he was a father of four at the time. And he had four young kids, but he still wanted to go serve his country and fight. But the studios and, and because of his age and some other uh, factors, he was never allowed to see frontline combat, but he wanted to. And he was like actually broken up over the fact that that he couldn't do it. And you compare that to to uh, a tough guy, Frankie. It's like, oh, OK, I'll take uh, I'll take cheap shots against against Nazis when they're like already knocked out, being carried out. Exactly. But yeah, actually doing any fighting hard pass that's an excellent point he's gonna break somebody's head i'm gonna unless you're a nazi or some stupid like that wow real tough guy filming these little pr campaigns it's like you want to go in the trenches bro you want to go up against a panzer guy you want to uh you want to get <laughs> strafed by a fokker 190 asshole you got a problem frank no because frank wouldn't have survived frank would have been dead would have been totally finished and uh yeah um that's that's usually how that would have gone and so but he repaid the jews in full, many, many times over for his uh, absconsion from, from duty in, in, at that point. Because you have to remember, for those of you who are in Rhinelander, Israel was founded in 1948. The succession of these events, World War One, World War II, Foundation of Israel, 1965, it's like, it's kind of funny how tightly choreographed all this was. But they needed, they needed to get a lot of money into Palestine for weapons. And Sinatra helped members of the Haganah Remember Pastor John Haganah? Well, this is the actual Haganah, the pre-state Zionist military organization, the forerunner of the IDF. He helped smuggle $1 million into Palestine, and probably a lot more than that, but this is the story uh, that, that we know. In September of 1947, the UN was weighing ratification of its partition plan for Palestine, uh, which would create a Josh state, and Sinatra performed at an Action for Palestine rally at the Hollywood Bowl that drew 20,000 Josh supporters. March 1948, on behalf of Haganah, 
After meeting with Haganah representative and uh, mayor of Jerusalem, future mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kolek, and hearing from him of a problem in getting arms shipped from New York to the yet-to-be-born Israel, Sinatra agreed to convey the cash needed to get the shipment on its way despite a U.S. embargo. There was an embargo against um, weapons um, at that time by, I think, Truman, if I recall correctly. Would have been Truman? Would have been Truman or FDR? Sort of rough on the history it don't matter there's an embargo that they had to deal with and so long before teddy kolik uh, became the mayor of jerusalem um the and it became clear that british would withdraw br- the british would withdraw from palestine it's like clear it, like i have to well actually so much of the writing with this because it's like when it became clear that the british would withdraw you mean when it became clear after decades of Jewish terrorism and in bombing the King David Hotel and like killing Britons that they were going to just like give up the territory. Jesus Christ, these people in a war between the Jews and Arabs over Israel's independence was inevitable. That's, was that what it was? It was a war over the independence or was it stealing of the land? It's just this is so. Yeah, Jews would need arms to or in order to survive. Of course, the United States was awash with weapons, surplus from 19, uh, World War II. But the 1935 Neutrality Act pro- prohibited the thing that was supposed to prevent us from going into World War II, prohibited the exportation of military equipment to Israel. Oh, God, it's another Shoah. All armaments would have to be acquired illegally and smuggled out of America. The, those involved would be criminals under U.S. law. Well, <laughs> probably not, but still... October 1947, Haganah, the Yeshuv's clandestine paramilitary organization, dispatched Kolek to New York to head their illegal arms procurement mission. The offices of Haganah in New York were located in the upper floors of Manhattan's Hotel 14, which was not just a seedy hotel, but it was also a cell for Haganah in the United States. This is where this the, the Copacabana Club and Hotel 14, which is where the story takes place, was all controlled by Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, who we now know were the guys that got the dirt on J. Edgar Hoover being a fag and were working with Roy Cohn and Lou Rosenstiel and all of this stuff from the other deep dives we've done. This is an intersection of that story. Very interesting stuff. And so you have this sort of clandestine activity going on. They're trying to find some way to get this cash out of the United States, out of Jewish organized crime syndicates, and into the hands of Israelis. And so they, uh, the night spot, Copacabana, was, of course, noted for the Copa girls. And this is where people like Frank Sinatra would uh, come and perform. And the Copacabana was also owned by members of the mafia, Jewish and Italian. And so Haganah operatives uh, would go about their activities in the hotel above at night. And then they would go down into the Copacabana in the evening and sort of hang out. Now, uh, in 1948, this guy, Teddy Kolick, this future mayor of Jerusalem, had quite a problem. Docked at the port of New York, he had an Irish ship captain at the helm of a boat full of arms purchased by the Haganah. The boat with fake bills of lading was to sail beyond the three-mile territorial limit of the U.S., outside of the jurisdiction of American authorities, and offload its cargo munitions into another ship destined for Israel. The boat, however, was going nowhere until the captain received his bribe, which Kolik was carrying in a satchel <laughs> laden with cash, reportedly $1 million. But Kolik feared he was being watched by the FBI and had no way to deliver the cash to the captain. 
And see, this is one of the problems, right? Because I don't think they had turned Hoover at that point. I don't think that this had really transpired. I think that was earlier, just right after this. But this is one of the encumbrances right. that they had. They wanted to go, why can't we just take these weapons and give them to Israel? Why is the U.S. government getting in our way? Why is the FBI watching us? This is a problem. And so Kolek went downstairs to the Copacabana where Sinatra was performing. And he and Sinatra had met before. Kolek sitting at the bar. Sinatra comes over. The two strike up a conversation. And for some reason, he decided to confide in Sinatra about his dilemma. It's like, oh, for some reason, like you, uh, why would you just trust this guy? Oh, because you know that this guy has been a philo-Semite all along. And uh, Sinatra agreed to be the uh, the guy <laughs> to carry the money to the pier and gave it to the ship's captain. Yeah, that was Sinatra. He did it because, quote, it was the beginning of the young nation. I wanted to help. I was afraid that they might fall down. <laughs> Later, Israeli Prime Ministers David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin would separately thank Sinatra privately for the service he performed in the aid of the state of Israel. And, of course, yeah, like I said, the I already sort of said the thing about the Haganah cell. But, dude, <laughs> it, I definitely did not know about this. Literally the mule for the arms deal. Yes. I mean, like, he's been building his philo-Semite cred up until this point, but this... <laughs> This is just like the <laughs> the point of no return. Well, his childhood is probably the point of no return. But I mean, yeah, it's one thing to just do the pro Jewish, pro Israel media, but to actually like take an active role in the arms deal itself, it's just incredible. Dude, doesn't this make Frank Sinatra like a founding father of the state of Israel? I mean, I think so because yeah, the- along with along with uh, what's Ben Zion Netanyahu? Yeah, he should be right up there in the top. Yeah, this founding member. I mean, how do you? Because because if you think about this, you have people like Haim Solomon who made loans to the United States uh, for the revolution and everything else, and you had all these, you know, like we did in the Ben Franklin deep dive, all these Jewish military contractors who were, you know, deeply embedded with the the American Revolutionary Army, Continental Army. So what? So if those people who were assisting the United States. Were you know, and they people want to try to consider Haim Solomon sort of a founding father, and they give him all these tributes and everything else. And Israel is giving Frank Sinatra all of these tributes for the things that he did. Why? I mean, isn't isn't that what Sinatra is? I mean, this is what this yeah. without this shipment of arms, without this million dollars. I mean, how? What else would this be? <laughs> I mean, Frank Sinatra is effectively the Israeli Paul Revere. <laughs> he is, yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, he he definitely is. And it's kind of funny, and this is what I was alluding to before, is even though uh, Sinatra was heavily involved with communists, um, you know, he was a guy who, when the Red Scare stuff started to happen in the, the HUAC, House Un-American Activities Commission, uh, was convened, and they were going after specific people in Hollywood, um, Sinatra was defending all of the people that were on the list for HUAC. But they never went after him. Very interesting. Hmm. Well, who was who was in charge of that? Well, that was Roy Cohn, and that was J. Edgar Hoover, and they decided not to go after Frank Sinatra at all. Very interesting. Hmm. Big think. They would go after uh, the Rosenberg and others. This is kind of funny, but not Frank Sinatra. Uh, the FBI file, um, you know, this is when his, he had it, dude, Sinatra's FBI file is 1200 pages long. A lot of it's, re- <laughs> a lot of it's redacted. It's actually longer than, uh, Giancarlo, uh, which is in- incredible, like mob boss, uh, Giancana, Jesus, not Giancarlo, Giancana. Uh, he's got, it's like 36 pages longer. 
but they never arrested him. So it's like, well, what was he then? Was he the guy? Was he like sort of an Indian agent in between the FBI and, and Jewish organized crime to sort of work out that merger? <laughs> sort of seems like it because guy never nothing ever happened to him. And he was heavily involved in a lot of stuff. And, you know, it, it never, never caused a problem uh, for these people. And so um, Sinatra was also one of the founding members of the Committee for the First Amendment, a group that supported the so-called Hollywood Ten screenwriters and directors who were blacklisted after refusing to divulge they were members of the Communist Party. So he's all for free speech for Jewish commies, James, but not for stupid Nazis, I guess. That's not American. Mm. That's just not American. That's not who we are. <laughs> totally un-American. Yeah. yeah, and this is this was a, a very interesting time in Hollywood uh, with the the supposed blacklisting and all these, these other things going on. And there was actually, the real blacklisting that occurred was not of the Jewish directors. They were able to keep making films. Some of them were, were run out of the country, <laughs> actually happened. But for the most part, the people that were getting blacklisted were, were those that were opposed uh, to communism. People, again, like John Wayne, uh, had a very difficult time getting roles in anything other than typecast westerns because of Jewish control of Hollywood, even back then. So this is not a new thing. No, it's not a new thing. And from here, he sort of pivots into what Jews were trying to do. So you have to sort of look at Sinatra and his support of Jews and the things that he was doing sort of in the in the context of the timeline of what Jews were trying to accomplish. Right. So pre-World War Two, they're they're trying to destroy the Nazis. And of course, he's out making films to, you know, calling Nazis stupid and don't do anti-Semitism. They're trying to found the state of Israel. So, you know, he smuggles a million dollars so that arms can get into Palestine he cuts all these videos, you know, in support of this and against that. He, you know, goes from, you know, he's backing Jews in Hollywood. And then, you know, what's the next shot, right? What do they start pivoting to once they found the state of Israel? Well, we have to tear down the white system of control, white America. It's like, wow, it's amazing. White America would have a white system of control. Isn't that funny, James? Isn't that weird how that happens? That, you know, you would have sort of an entity and then... The people in charge of that entity would look like everybody else in that entity. Oh, but we got to tear that down, though. And 1950s was when they started really pushing on uh, civil rights stuff for blacks. In 1958, Sinatra wrote in Ebony magazine, A friend to me has no race, no class, and belongs to no minority. My friendships are formed out of affection, mutual respect, and a feeling of having something in common. These are eternal values that cannot be classified. Gee, sounds like a colorblind conservative. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Yeah. 1950s. Get this, guy, yeah. get this guy a spot at CPAC. Yeah, right. Well, and this is what would have been tolerable. Barely tolerable at this point in time. This actually, you have to put yourself into sort of that mindset, 1958. That statement that he made would have been considered radical at that time. There is no race. There is no class. Nobody's a minority like that would have probably pissed a lot of people off. And it did right. um, Sinatra during the 50s and 60s. And this is part. This is the overlap with Sammy Davis. Black performers appearing at major hotels would not be allowed to stay in them. Segregated from white performers. They were restricted to ramshackle quarters. Well, they were ramshackle quarters because if they were nice quarters that uh, allowed blacks to stay there by the next morning, they would be ramshackle. 
So they just <laughs> stayed ramshackle in a shabby part of town. When Sinatra learned of these practices by hotel owners, he erupted in disapproval, just King Cuck eruption, and threatened to leave Vegas for good, once again using his power and influence to provoke change. Sinatra became an instrumental figure in the desegregation of Las Vegas in 1961 after an incident where an African-American couple entered the lobby of a hotel and were blocked by a security guard. Sinatra and Davis locked arms and forced the hotel management to begin hiring black waiters and busboys. Yeah, I'm sure they just walked in and say, you will do this. And they were backed up by no Jewish power whatsoever. Right. (laughs) Like (laughs) they just made the demand and. The white owners of the Sands and the other casinos just acquiesced to everything that they wanted. They make it seem like these guys were doing this heroic act, and it's just like, nah. And it makes a lot of sense, too, because Davis as the one-eyed black Negro and Sinatra as the ostensible Roman Catholic Italian is just, I mean, it's it's a really a match made in heaven. And one aspect that we didn't mention in the Davis deep dive is that Davis looked up to Sinatra as sort of a, a role model he wanted all the things that frank had the the women the cars the the homes the money the the flash and everything and so sinatra is sort of the guidepost for davis's behavior it's just like yeah i mean the way that these guys behave it's just not really a surprise yeah and this is a time too when sinatra's career was actually sort of on the rocks he was not doing very well like his music was not popular uh, his his films he had yet to really break back into to big films and so I mean you do this kind of thing and wow just a few years later massive career a uh, turnaround but it, it wasn't just cynical like he wasn't just doing this just to appease uh, his the masters he was doing this because he actually believed it he actually believed it and it was something that he was brought up with I mean he learned to speak Yiddish he was raised by a Yenta I mean I just you can't make this stuff up um, and so, yeah, he gets deeper, deeper involved, too, with the civil rights movement with uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, 1961, he played a benefit show at Carnegie Hall for Martin Luther King and his fellow Rat Pack members and reprise, reprise label mates in boycotting hotels and casinos that refused entry to black patrons and performers. According to his son, Frank Emanuel Sinatra, Jr., King sat weeping in the audience at one of his father's concerts in 1963 as Sinatra sang Old Man River. Oh, isn't that that just a tearjerker, (laughs) James? Yeah. (laughs) He headlined the National Association for the Advancement of Color People fundraisers in the 1960s and used his influence to ensure equal treatment for friends and fellow performers who were Blake. When he changed his... Oh, yeah, here we go. When he changed his political affiliations in 1970... Sinatra became less outspoken on racial issues. Wow. So when he went from supporting Democrat Party and there was a huge polarity shift to the Southern strategy and Sinatra became a supporter of Richard Nixon, it's amazing how all of a sudden these issues that he cared about with race sort of just disappeared. James, they sort of just faded away. But not Israel, though. (laughs) That shit got ramped up to about 11. But race stuff? Nah, that was just that was just, you know, we got we got the foot in the door. You know, we got all this stuff done in 1965. Why do I need to keep pushing this shit? We have other things to do, such as right. taking care of racist white people who didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, they were on to the next frontier. Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, these are all accomplished and it's time to to hammer on another another uh outpost of white resistance, which is uh yeah, Israel, and to really solidify support for it. 
Well, and the thing is to understand, too, because he doesn't go to Israel until 1962. And you sort of wonder, it's like, well, wow, he was so instrumental in smuggling cash there and, you know, outspoken during the war and then after the war and the foundation of the of Israel. And why didn't he go there for like 15 years? What's the deal? It's like, oh, well, if you look into what was going on there, it was very bloody Jewish terrorism <laughs> for a long time. Probably not very safe. For a guy, you know, with uh, psychological issues and fractured eardrums that prevented him from seeing combat. Yeah, you can't really bring that guy into a into a war zone. But Sinatra went there in 1962 and gave seven live performances. Um, and apparently there were. Uh, yeah, let's see here. S- Sinatra donated the profits from all of those concerts, raised one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but gave all the money away. James just gave it all away because. He needed to build a friendship center in in Nazareth where Israel, Jews, and Arabs could congregate together in goodwill. And I think that center got bombed like 50 years later, 40 years later. But, you know, that's how that goes when you just come in and swing your your nose around and start making demands and building things on people's homes that have been there for 1,500, 2,000 years. Forever, actually. (laughs) Might as well. But, uh, yeah, and Reprise Records, his label was, of course, uh, fine. The f- foundation of that label was financed by Jews, and it was uh, his accountant was a guy named Mo Austin, who, of course, was Jewish as well. Oh, so yeah, yeah, this good old Italian record company, oh, not quite. Oh, dude, J- Jews wrote most of Frank Sinatra's songs. I mean, it's just just like the Christmas stuff, like all of the thing. Yeah, it's just all of it is, and there's hidden meaning with with sort of j- the Jewish sort of uh, culture embedded in a lot of these songs as well um let's see while in israel sinatra filmed a seven minute featurette in which he declares with one hand the people of israel protect their hearts and their homes and with the other they build a better society he made a short movie to support hista dut hista rut hista drut israel's labor zionist social welfare and healthcare organization his visit coincided with the country's annual yam hatzmat independence day Frank Sinatra sang at the official Independence Day event in Tel Aviv and was seated behind Ben-Gurion and Moshe Dayan on reviewing, in the reviewing stand during the Israeli Defense Forces Parade. There are some videos out on YouTube, actually. Uh, you can see Sinatra performing for the IDF. It's very, very patriotic, right? Just really gives you nice <laughs> feels about America. He also, Did he sing in Yiddish? I know, but he, he could have. <laughs> Uh, delivered a speech in Duluth. Yeah, oh, so, so during this time, he he performed for the IDF at uh, Tel Nof Air Base and delivered a speech in Jerusalem in which he urged people all over the world to support Israel. Uh, he had a valet that went along with him wherever he went named George Jacobs, who wrote, Sinatra adored Israel, and Israel adored him right back. Here was a whole country of underdogs and survivors, the people Sinatra respected most. People like himself who had beaten the odds. Israel was the only place on the whole tour where Sinatra took a real interest in the country as anything other than a concert stop. Most moving for both Mr. Sinatra and me was the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial, particularly the Underground Children's Museum, where each of the more than one million tiny lights representing the life of a child that had been snuffed out. Afterwards, Sinatra said the visit had made him feel rotten about not fighting in World War II and that Israel was was a wonderful country worth dying for, wrote Jacobs, <laughs> an assistant with Sinatra in his book My Life with Frank Sinatra. Jacobs accompanied Sinatra on his 1962 Israeli concert tour. So he was there. 
for this. <laughs> wow. Was it really worth dying for, though, Frank? Because you didn't. In fact, you went to great lengths to avoid dying for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just a disrespect for, for the Americans that had been forced into that war to fight and die, thinking they were fighting and dying for their country, but they actually were fighting and dying to create Israel. Yeah. Ah, gee whiz, kikes, I'm feeling like a real rotten fellow over here for what I did. It's just like... <laughs> How can I ever make it up to you? Yeah, how can I? Well, Frank, actually, um, <laughs> and so this 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 just disgusting level of philosemitism uh, resulted in a very natural response from the Arab League. Uh, they had the Israeli Boycott Bureau in Cairo issued a ban on Sinatra's recordings and films in October of 1962. After all of this happened. In a statement, the Arab League said it had conclusively determined that Sinatra, quote, participates in the distribution of Israel bonds and that he exerts efforts for the collection of funds to be sent to Israel. In 1964, Sinatra was officially barred from entering Lebanon due to his moral and material support for Israel. Actually based, unironically based. In 2014, NBC News reported that a collection of Sinatra CDs were on display in the March Lebanon office in Beirut with the note that they were banned for Zionist tendencies. <laughs> Sinatra tendencies. It's ah, a little bit more than a tendency. Sinatra's band recordings are also posted on the group's website, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, 1962, he's been to Israel. They, you know, I think they had the 707 back then. But jet travel was really few and far between until the late 60s. But it's kind of funny. He goes right back over there in 1964. <laughs> just goes right back. And what Jacob said about this being the only stop in this being the only country where he took any interest in the country, this was in the context of an overseas tour, right? So he was touring overseas at the time. He was touring Europe, right? But he doesn't take any interest in in any other country. Italy? How about Italy? You like Italy, guy? Like, you have any connection there at all? No, because your mother was too busy, like, demanding Whammon's right to vote. And she wasn't taking care of you because you were in the arms of Mrs. Golden being stuffed full of Yiddish and apples and mezuzah chain necklaces. So, yeah. Why I wonder you... if those CDs in that March Lebanon office were destroyed in Israel's uh, bombing good. earlier this year. Good. Well, not good. I wonder. I guess good. Well, sort of good. Somewhat good. Silver lining. Yeah, silver lining. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I just want to drive home the point that... Because Frank Sinatra was not really raised by his mother, who, if she were a good Italian woman, would have been cooking him Italian food and teaching him to speak Italian, because I guarantee you Sinatra has no idea how to speak fucking Italian, and I mean, he never did, and he, the fact that he has no love or affinity for his own country, but suddenly has this deep connection with Israel, it's like, well, of course, look what look what that did when his mother was not there and he was raised by a Jew, essentially. Look what happened. And it's not just that, but it's part of, it's a catalyst for this whole thing from a very early age. Um, he went to Israel in 1964 to attend the dedication of the Frank Sinatra Brotherhood and Friendship Center of Arab and Israeli Children. And he goes back in 1965. I mean, look, I get it. He's on world tour. He's doing different things. But there's a period in the 1960s, especially this very critical period, when there's a lot of gay shit happening in the United States, where Frank Sinatra is in Israel literally every fucking year, like every year, year after year, <laughs> going to Israel. And in fact, he's doing so not just to sing songs and raise money and blah, 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 blah. He's over there uh, filming movies that were all about 
Israel's War for Independence. Had no idea that he was in this movie. It's called Cast a Giant Shadow. And it is a 1965 movie about Mickey Marcus, a Jewish-American colonel who fought and died in Israel's War for Independence. And, of course, <laughs> Mickey Kaus, who is he played by? Well, none other than Kirk Douglas, a.k.a. Isser Danielovich, who is the father of, we all know, Michael Douglas, a.k.a. Gordon Gecko. So is it Michael Danielovich? Michael Isser Danielovich is his real name. I can't believe these guys, Michael, and dude, and if you look at early photos of Kirk Douglas, just that, like that, that long, like Jewish face, it's just like, Jesus Christ. How do these people not know? How do these people not know? I mean, when you have Eddie Cantor and Michael Douglas, Kirk Douglas, Lauren Bacall, like all these people just like dancing around on this, it's like, don't you realize what this is? But they get yeah. these people. Michael Douglas, yeah. very cool scene in Falling Down where you kill the Nazi arms dealer. Oh, I forgot. Very nice. I forgot about that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Falling Down, yeah, it's a great movie until you get to that part. Um, it began with a m phone call to Melville Shevelson, Shevelson, who wrote a book called How to Make a Jewish Movie. <laughs> <laughs> about the film he wrote, directed and produced, Cast a Giant Shadow. And I think about the title of that movie, Cast a Giant Shadow. Cast a Giant Shadow on who? America? Is that what it is? Foundation of Israel? Cast a Giant Shadow on who? The Mediterranean? Or America? I don't know. Cast a Giant Shadow about the early days of Israel. This starred another of Frank's Jewish friends, Kirk Douglas. So they're not just co-stars, they're friends. Sinatra heard about it and virtually demanded a part. He even flew from Rome, where he was filming, to Tel Aviv to play the role of the pilot of the Piper Club in the MOOC. Piper Club. Piper Cub in the movie. Now, what's funny is Shovelson said, look, Frank, Frankie, we'll come to Italy and uh, film you there. You're only doing a cameo for this role for my Jewish movie. But nah, Frank insisted on coming to Israel himself just to do this little bit. So later, he and Melville Shovelson attended the opening ceremony of a kibbutz youth wing, which Sinatra had donated. Quote, there were a lot of speeches in Hebrew, which, of course, Frank didn't understand, Shovelson recalled. Come on, he said to me, let's get out of here. I've got a couple of broads waiting for us in Tel Aviv. <laughs> of course, <laughs> he always had broads waiting for him. In fact, I did not know this either because we mentioned Lauren Bacall in the deep dive on Sammy Davis, who, you know, Lauren Bacall, a.k.a. Betty Joan Weinstein, uh, who had been the den mother and late husband, uh, well, her husband, late Humphrey Bogart, of the original Rat Pack. Well... I didn't know that Lauren Bacall, Jew Lauren Bacall and Frank Sinatra were planning to get married. And it was being kept a secret at Sinatra's request. <laughs> Too Jewish for you, Frank? But then he discovered that she had had table napkins printed with their two names inscribed on them. And he canceled the marriage. Yeah, nah. I think that is just sort of the tip of the old iceberg of the Jewish neuroticism that you were experiencing with Lauren Bacall. And you were just like, yeah, not this broad, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, trust me. Cause our milkies, all for it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, nah. So yeah, when he was in Israel, he donated a uh, hundred thousand um, dollars for the movie. He was going to get paid a hundred thousand dollars for being a cameo in this movie, and uh, yeah, nah. He gave all that to the Frank Sinatra Brotherhood and Friendship Youth Center in 1967. He gave another hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to the center, just shelling out shekels every chance he gets. So yeah. Yeah, the Bank of Frank, open pockets. <laughs> and again, this is a time when he wasn't getting that many roles. I mean, in the 60s, his career was starting to rebound, 
But like, this is not a guy who just had copious amounts of money to spend, right? He wasn't a billionaire. So these are these are not insignificant outlays of cash he's making here. No. And and then, you know, things start to get a little dicey in the Israel world. You have the six day war, you have Yom Kippur, and you know, it's time uh to do some law and order in America. But before we go there, in the wake of the six day war in nineteen sixty seven, he and other Hollywood entertainers pledged a total of two and a half million dollars to Israel at a cocktail party hosted by Jack Warner. And Frank Sinatra personally contributed $25,000. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but when you go through his life and you add up all of the money that he personally gave, and then you do the conversion into $2,020, it's it's insane. It's a, it's a sizable portion of his income. And um, yeah, who's not surprised by that? But... But yeah, like you could you could spend an entire deep dive on Sinatra and the mafia. We're going to sort of touch on it a little bit because there's sort of a little bit of interplay with with him and in Nixon and Kennedy actually. Um of course everybody knows that Sinatra introduced JFK to Marilyn Monroe and the story goes that John F Kennedy banished Frank Sinatra from his Camelot uh because of his mafia ties and uh, Kennedy's crackdown on organized crime. Um, and in fact, Sam Giancana, who's this mob boss that was connected with Sinatra, um, blamed Sinatra because Giancana ran this op to get uh, a lot of vote turnout for Kennedy. And he was looking for a quid pro quo from Kennedy on, you know, some of his activities. And he was not getting those activities because, you know, Jews had sort of decided that yeah, Italian mafia, this is something that we're going to start winding down now, right? I mean, this is what all these movies that we've uh, grew up with sort of have been predicated on this whole era. And this is, you know, so also you have what was going on in the background, too, is you have the pivot from uh, Jewish communism to neoconservatism. This is when people like Stephen Miller, uh, I want to say rabbi, but he kind of rabbi, I guess his uh, Stephen Miller's the protege of David Horowitz. He did the big switch. David Horowitz one day is out in the streets demanding <laughs> civil rights for blacks. And the next day he's wanting to turn the Middle East into glass. And you have uh, <laughs> William Crystal and Irving Crystal. I mean, you know, everybody knows this transition. Well, think of that as like a big wave in the ocean and Sinatra and Sammy Davis are sort of part of that wave and they switch from supporting democratic policies after LBJ after Kennedy is assassinated of course for denying Israel nuclear weapons and they needed a new home in the Republican Party and you have this big (laughs) polarity switch and you think about it it's like oh this is just a natural phenomenon a pendulum swinging sometimes things change it's like no this is a Jewish strategy we need to shift all of these racist whites out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and remake this a little bit. We need to shake things up, mix a little, sprinkle some Finkelthink on top of it. And then you put Richard Nixon, who had been working with these people behind the scenes extensively, um, into power. And you have Richard Nixon backed by Donald Trump, Roy Cohn, goes on and on and on. And we've covered that extensively in deep dives. But isn't it interesting that these guys go from being very liberal promoting civil rights and MLK and all this other bullshit, James. And all of a sudden, people like Sammy Davis and, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra, they just switch sides and all of a sudden start supporting Nixon. It's so weird. Why would they do this? 
Yeah, shaking hands in the Oval Office with Tricky Dick himself. <laughs> yeah, and so this is the part where you could go down a whole rabbit hole on this, but I just have sort of one little anecdote about uh, Nixon and Lucky Luciano and more specifically Meyer Lansky because oh, if we now know sort of Lansky and Lou Rosenstiel as, as the stewards of this proto Epstein Maxwell blackmail operation that had been going on. And so Sinatra's mob ties go back to at least 1947 where he was photographed with Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky on the Hotel Nacional in Havana, which I believe was owned by Meyer Lansky himself. And in fact, I in doing the research for this deep dive, I saw that Meyer Lansky's 400-pound grandson, uh, who wears like straw hats and smokes like cheap, shitty cigars, is like out there demanding. <laughs> demand. He looks so Jewish. His name's like... His name's like Edward Rappaport or something, but he's like the grandson of Meyer Lansky. And he just like rides the coattails of the fame of his of his grandfather and thinks he's all tough. But he has nothing like he's he has no money. And he's trying now that uh, relationships with uh, Cuba are starting to to thaw a little bit. He's trying uh, to sue the Cuban government to get like the hotel that was illegally built by his father back. (laughs) So it's kind of a funny, desperate move but you could go down the rabbit hole on that if you want um but sinatra gave luciano a gold cigarette case that was described inscribed to my dear lucky dear pal lucky from his friend frank sinatra so he's very tied in with all these guys we get it nixon's mafia connections went way back too. in his first race for congress nixon won the secret financial support of mickey cohen the head of the syndicate in california with the approval of the east coast mob financial genius meyer lansky Lansky had developed pre-Castro Cuba for mafia gambling, prostitution, drug trafficking, and other nefarious activities. Now listen to this. This is interesting. In the early 1950s, Meyer Lansky met Richard Nixon and Babe Rebozo in Havana, where Nixon had reportedly lost $50,000 at one of Lansky's gambling casinos. But Rebozo picked up Nixon's marker. Lansky operated in Havana with the approval of and with millions of dollars in cash payoffs to Cuban dictator Batista. Nixon embraced and lauded Batista during an official vice presidential trip to Cuba. When Fidel Castro took over Cuba and shuttered Havana's casinos, Lansky put a $1 million contract on Castro. This went hand in hand with Vice President Nixon's secret CIA plans to eliminate Castro of the island nation only 90 miles from u.s shores now isn't that interesting now doesn't that explain a lot about this sort of anti-castro republican sort of narrative this sort of finkel think of like love castro hate castro it's like castro this revolution in cuba basically what dude lansky law like there are recordings of lansky saying like i really fucked up like after all this shit happened because what they did was <laughs> it got very hot in the united states for these guys to argue uh, to operate and they shifted their operations to cuba built this hotel invested a lot of money and they lost a lot and lansky i mean he says he lost you know he was shifting a lot of his money to other people but but isn't it funny when you sort of connect the dots on these guys history that you're really never told about and then you start to see uh, what what's going on? And there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff with Batista and and Nixon and all of this, and it's just so funny. It's like you try to like go back and you look at these different regimes, and people want to plan trust on. Oh no, this is when this was really based, bro. It's like oh, when they were sort of operating 
with Meyer Lansky. Was that when it was based? Because it doesn't really seem that based, but yeah. So it's kind of funny. Did you know about this, James, with the uh, with Lansky like losing everything because these because of uh, Castro takeover? Honestly, had no idea. But you're right. This does add some context to the to the because I mean. My my understanding of the obsession with Castro that continues to this day. I mean, they're making Castro a, a centerpiece in the Georgia Senate campaign of all places. Um, and it, it was okay. This is an appeal to Cuban Americans that fled Castro, but it seems like an odd grudge to be harboring so many years later. But when you understand who was really deeply impacted by that, by you know losing a significant amount of money in Cuba at the time. Uh, it all does make more sense. Yeah, it does. And there's, I mean, this is something that we will dive deep on at some point um, more. I mean, we've skirted the edges of Nixon with Cone and sort of this 40,000 foot view succession of, you know, these types of Republicans and really the Southern strategy being employed and the switch and everything that was done. And there are so many parallels to Trump and Nixon, especially now that Trump is a one term president. They tried to get him to, um, uh, to uh, resign or or be impeached, but you know it's going to be the lesson is going to be the same. You know if you if you use sort of this uh, racialized uh, rhetoric to get elected and you do a bunch of Zionism, we're going to crush. We're we're going to leave Israel with what it achieved, but then we're going to crush the racism and we're going to keep crushing the racism. And they do that over and over. I mean, we talked about Arthur Finkelstein. During Nixon's campaign, looking out at the length and breadth of America and having to deal with the racism problem and how you do that. And so that's why this is important that these guys are all sort of connected. Um, and so what's interesting about this is Sinatra and Nixon, their relationship actually began through Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew. Um, they had first gotten together over Thanksgiving in 1970. They really enjoyed each other's company. Uh, Agnew became a regular house guest at uh, Frank's Palm Springs place. Uh, over 18 visits in the months that followed. The guys played golf together, smoked cigars, probably chased Jewish broads. I mean, who who knows? But apparently they, they even watched Deep Throat at one point together. I don't know. I'm just, you know, going <laughs> with what I got. Um, but they wanted to look into Sinatra and make sure that, you know, he wasn't going to just uh, cut and run, right? Now, another thing is, the IRS was investigating preacher Billy Graham. Now, given what we know about dispensationalism and the things that we just talked about uh, on the midweek show two weeks ago, James, it's kind of funny. Wow, Billy Graham is like really tightly interwoven with Nixon. Imagine my shock. I just couldn't even think of it. It's just crazy. Um, but yeah, there's other interesting stuff here. Like Sinatra co-owned, like Sinatra's private aircraft was, he actually co-owned with a Jew, Danny Schwartz, who was a uh, San Francisco Democrat. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the long and the short of it is Sinatra becomes really close friends with Spiro Agnew. Nixon keeps him at arm's length because of Sinatra's really obvious connections in his deep FBI file. Cause Nixon wanted to make Sinatra like some sort of official person in his administration, but in these sort of recently unredacted Nixon tapes and, and files, they sort of say, like, yeah, this guy, 1,275-page FBI file, yeah, this guy's never getting through Senate confirmation. No fucking way. <laughs> but they spent so much time together um, with Sinatra and Nixon, too, that the Secret Service had a code name for Sinatra based on his height of Napoleon. 
um, is what they would call him. But yeah, these guys had a pretty pretty significant relationship. But Sinatra and Nixon never had a one on one. They were trying to get one so that they could have an off the record conversation. But they never really could quite get there, um, at least while he was president. We don't know sort of what took place outside of what we're sort of allowed to know. Uh, but what is kind of interesting is after the Nixon administration blew up and Nixon resigned um, and left the White House, Sinatra continued his relationship with Spiro Agnew. And uh, Agnew ended up in a lot of problems over bribery and tax evasion. And Sinatra loaned him over $200,000 so he could pay back his fines and back taxes and whatever else. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he eventually paid Sinatra back, but it took him it took him almost a decade to do so. But it's kind of funny. Yeah, these, these guys, it's just you, you, you sort of look at this stuff at face value, and then you sort of wonder... Um, you know, if, if there's more to the story and I'm sure there is, we just don't have all, all the facts in front of us. So, yeah. Well, and you know who else Frank Sinatra got involved with in the, in the 1970s during the, uh, the wind down of the Nixon administration was Harvey Weinstein. When Harvey Weinstein was working as a concert promoter in Buffalo, New York, uh, Frank Sinatra, he got Frank Sinatra. Hey, I'm sure he really had to pull some teeth <laughs> to get Frank to come up and, uh, do a show put on by him and his uh, fellow Jewish concert promoter, Corky Berger. And there's actually a photo of them from 1974. Harvey Weinstein with the big afro and uh, gleaming Frank Sinatra in between the two of them. Oh, Corky presents a very unique opportunity for me to do a retired version. Hey, Corky. Remember Corky from Life Goes On? You know that show? You never seen that? I think I brought this up before and you didn't know what it was. <laughs> Maybe you just don't want to talk about Down syndrome. That's okay. I understand. We don't have to talk about Down Syndrome. Yeah, so um, well, interesting thing about Spear Agnew, though, not Jewish, not Jewish, but he is, um, you know, he's born in Greece. He's a Greek. And, you know, at this time, with uh, there's a lot of Jews very much involved in Greeks and Greek shipping. And, uh, yeah, so I'm not saying Spiro Agnew is Jewish, but, you know, he would have been very comfortable with this whole crowd of people. So, yeah. Dude, 1972, like the he loans he loans all this money to Agnew. He's donated. I don't even know. I the one thing I didn't do with this deep dive was like add up all the money he's given to Israel. I don't think anyone's done that in all the research that I did. It would be interesting to do it because the uh, the <laughs> the money pledged to Israel just got six million shekels higher. James, uh, in, in the wake of uh, actually leading up to Yom Kippur with the Yom Kippur War, because they knew it was after the Six Day War before Yom Kippur. 1972, Frank Sinatra raises $6.5 million in bond pledges for Israel. And after the war, as Israel became increasingly unpopular in liberal circles, because they're kind of becoming uh, kind of a shitbag over there, causing a lot of bad optics for people, Sinatra didn't care. His loyalty would endure forever. 1975, he announces that he was personally giving $250,000 in Israel bonds in memory of my parents' neighbor, Mrs. Golden. Might as well just say in memory of my mother, like my mother, my Yenta mother, Mrs. Golden. Also in 1975, Sinatra performed at the Jerusalem Convention Center. The concert was released as the album Sinatra, the Jerusalem Concert. According to Jacobs, his valet, we often return to Israel, which Sinatra decided was his favorite country. Yeah, he just decided that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe <laughs> he did. 
I mean, again, it's the nature versus nurture sort of thing, you know? Who knows what's really going on here? Doesn't seem to have much uh, affinity for Italy, though. Returns? No, no affinity for Italy, no affinity really for the United States either. Uh, I mean, this guy, at a time when... Yeah, at a time when, uh, you know, jet travel, like you mentioned, was not as ubiquitous as it is today, this guy's doing almost annual returns to Israel. Yeah, I mean, other than... uh, Other than sort of his his sort of uh superficial all races all religions i love america because in that video uh the house that i live in like he does go into this whole thing about like i, I don't think of myself as italian i'm I, i'm american we're all americans and you know what makes america so i mean he'll do that kind of a thing but only in the service of like we're redefining america as not blood and soil like over beating you in the head over and over and over again with it. Like this is the this is the Emma Lazarus What is America 101 education from big singer Frank Sinatra. Uh so yeah, returns to Israel again in 1978 to raise 1 million dollars to build what would become the Frank Sinatra International Student Center at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Hebrew University conferred upon Sinatra the prestigious National Scopus Award, its highest honor in recognition for his contribution to Israel and the Jewish people. It doesn't stop there, James. Simon Weisenthal, he meets him in 1979, telling the infamous Nazi hunter that he had been his hero for many years. Jesus Christ. <laughs> 1979, the Simon Weisenthal Center resolved to produce a full-length motion picture to document the horrors and caption the essence of the lives that were lost in the Holocaust. The intent was to motivate young people, too young to remember the genocide. This is the this is when the geno- this is when I mean, this is the beginning, this is the kickoff when the the Holocaust stuff became really front and center in, in everybody's fucking face in the 1980s. To study the Holocaust and learn its lessons. And this is where a lot of the exaggerations blew open even further. They had to they had to create a new level of a shock and awe with people. And uh, you know, in the words of Simon Weisenthal, hope lives when people hope lives when people remember. We have to always remember, never forget. Simon Weisenthal personally agreed to undertake a national drive to raise the funds required for making the movie. So Weisenthal met Sinatra in San Francisco. And the outcome was donating another $100,000 for the project. Sinatra says, although I'm not Jewish, the Holocaust is important to me. Sinatra made four more appearances on behalf of the Weisenthal Center, raising an additional $400,000 for the movie. So half a million dollars in 1979 money, James. (laughs) It's like, I don't even know what that is today. Probably six million. Probably. Um, Probably a couple million. That's for sure. Well, the film came out and I didn't even know about this film. Um, I'm sure some people do, though. The film was entitled Genocide, and it was narrated by Orson Welles and Elizabeth Taylor, who donated their services, opened to critical acclaim, and won an Academy Award for Best Documentary. So, again, a movie that nobody's heard of, that people didn't like, or that what you critical acclaim, for those of you out in Rio Rhinelander, means people who wouldn't normally have liked it had to begrudgingly say that they liked it, which is kind of like... The, the story of just Holocaust, every, every, everything, <laughs> right? It's always critical acclaim from people under duress, increasing levels of duress. Sinatra went on to serve as a member of the Simon Weisenthal Center's Board of Trustees. Wow. So just amazing. Wow. Yeah. Um, he also becomes an honorary board member of a Palm Springs synagogue. Maybe you could even call it his synagogue. 
his association began when he heard from his lawyer, accountant, and assorted other associates who had happened to be members of the shul. <laughs> he would have heard about it anyway because there was you know, a problem in getting the land for this building. Uh, but when your so-called best friends include Sammy Davis Jr., a.k.a. one-eyed Jewish black man, and his other rat, pig, rat, rat pack colleague, Joey Bishop, whom Sinatra called the Jew, uh, to say nothing of Sinatra songwriters Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein, there wasn't much doubt that the word would get out about the synagogue. And so Frank performed at a benefit show that raised several million dollars as a deposit for the new building. Sinatra did the show without charging a cent, and the money was raised. There you go. And he was made an honorary board member of the synagogue, of a synagogue, which typically they don't allow non-Jews to be board members, but not in the case of Frank Sinatra. Just walk right in. Yeah, this guy was blurring all the lines, right? He was a Gentile member of of the board of a synagogue. He was convincing his Catholic priest to allow a Jew to be the godfather of his son. It's like, uh, what's the, I mean, this guy, (laughs) yeah, really blurring the lines between the two. Yeah, in a a very huge way. Um, But here's a quick list of Jewish awards from Frank Sinatra. He got an award from the National Association of Christians and Jews. Of course, the Simon. The predecessor to uh, to John John Haganah's Kufi. Oh, yeah, it is the predecessor of Kufi. That's what I thought it was, because... Nakaj really doesn't have a good, um, doesn't really roll off the tongue, but Kufi, yeah, it goes a little bit better. Simon Weisenthal, of course, they gave him an award for the movie and everything else. The Israel Medallion of Valor for raising several millions of dollars for Israeli causes. Teddy Kolek, remember the uh, smuggle guy from uh, 1948, (laughs) one of the founding fathers and now, or at least then, mayor of Jerusalem. He gave... Yeah, he is a founding father then. He gave Sinatra the Jerusalem Foundation Award. <laughs> and then uh, the Los Angeles Josh community gave him the Holzer Memorial Award, National Scopus Award from Hebrew University, and also the very prestigious Israel Cultural Award. But, you know, when you're starting to get into the twilight of your life, James, you start to cross that line into being an octogenarian. You know, it's 1995. And Sinatra is wondering where he can go celebrate his 80th birthday. He could go anywhere. He can go to Miami. He could go to Italy. He could go maybe, you know, drive the Amalfi Coast. Wouldn't that be a really nice Italian getaway? No. 80th birthday, he charters a private plane with Lee Iacocca and Walter Matthau, and they go to fucking Israel for his 80th birthday. And <laughs> there was an entourage of 100 participants that spent time with him in Iliat. Uh, So, yeah, (laughs) big Israel vacation. After which they toured Jordan and Egypt, so they went to future Israel as well. They toured greater Israel. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Oh, man. And then this is is incredible, because I I just couldn't believe this headline. But yes, it's true. Frank Sinatra, after he died, there was a big auction, and Frank Sinatra had his own personal Yarmaluk, and (laughs) he, this personal Yarmaluk of Frank Sinatra that had Frank stitched into uh, whatever you call that weird sort of beaded sort of loom made bullshit that they usually do. Uh, it's sold for $10,000. $10,000. I'm just going to read this. This is kind of funny. This is from the Jerusalem Post. Uh, when a huge auction was held at Sotheby's earlier this month, this would have been in 2018 when this happened, uh, one of the items belonging to Frank Sinatra and his Last wife, Barbara, the item that made the most headlines was one of the smallest, a hand-knit Yarmaluk owned by Frank, 
which was purchased for nearly $10,000 by an unknown party. I'm sure a Jew, right? It's like Frank borrowed the yarmulke, the yarmulke for like <laughs> for the life the duration of his life and now it's back in Jewish hands. But untold until now was the story of why Sinatra had a kippah, where and how he got it, and the memorable night nearly 40 years ago when multiple members of the Rack Pack were among the unlikely guests of honor at a fundraising dinner for a Jewish day school on the Jersey Shore. The kippah was presented to Sinatra on an evening in May or June of 1981 at the old Tepelajewski's Hotel in Atlantic City. The occasion was the annual awards dinner held by the Hebrew Academy of Atlantic County, then located in Margate, New Jersey. And the man presenting the kippah to tuxedo-clad old blue eyes was Samuel Sonny Schwartz, a longtime journalist, columnist, radio host, and man about town in the Atlantic City area. There's a photo of it, blah, 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 blah. Um, What did they say? The Academy would choose one person in the community who had made an impact on the community more than anyone else. And through this person's connections, we would be able to raise funds for the school, remembers Rabbi Mordecai Weiss, longtime principal of the Hebrew Academy. Sonny Schwartz was the honoree in 1980, which his daughter said was a huge deal in, uh, in that era at that time. But Schwartz was the main organizer of the dinner the next year. And the honoree was his close friend, Skinny D'Amato. And so they decided that a rare happening should occur, uh, that a non-Jew should receive the honor. Another non-Jewish honoree a different year, according to Rabbi Weiss, was Ivana Trump, the then wife of future president (laughs) Donald Trump, who was a prominent figure in Atlantic City those days and would appear on Sonny Schwartz's radio show, the guy that gives Frank Sinatra his kippa so yeah i mean guy and so at the dinner was skinny damato jerry lewis who's jewish frank sinatra um sort of almost like quasi jewish and sam May davis jr definitely jewish and so they're all there and he's like getting a kippa <laughs> he gets, gets a kippa it's amazing but uh yeah then they did talk about the story about how it sort of like sat around for a while and now it's worth 10 grand so and watch <laughs> james 100 years from now You'll probably have some Jew that says that he was sold the Armaluke <laughs> under duress <laughs> and that it was stolen by Frank. That's what they do. Yes. And yeah. Go ahead. Demanding restitution from Italy. And that's what they do, too. They, you know, they'll take somebody like Frank. No doubt. Not a doubt in my mind. 100 years from now, 200 years in my because they know memories fade. That's why they have to keep doing the Holocaust shit over and over again. They will eventually attack and tear down Frank Sinatra. They will. No matter how Jewish he was, no matter how integral he was to the founding, they will tear him down. Whether he was just too white, he didn't marry a black, or he didn't do enough, they'll, they'll maybe even go after his World War II uh, status. But, yeah, it's kind of funny, James. You know, uh, while the Italian heritage of Frank Sinatra was not passed by his mother to her son, the Jewish heritage of Frank Sinatra Sr., yeah, was definitely passed to his son, Sinatra Jr., Frank Emanuel Sinatra, not only fond uh, of the ties to Israel that his father had, but also shared personal memories of his Jewish friends that were important in his own life <laughs> in a phone interview with the Jewish Journal. Quote, Sinatra had deep loyalties to his friends for years. When I was born, I was to be baptized in the church. Oh, this is where he talks about in detail with the, the Jew this is good anyway. I was baptized in the church that our family affiliated with asked Sinatra who would be the godfather. Sinatra said Manny Sex, who was a dear friend of his, would be my godfather. But 
The priest said that Sax, a Jew, could not be named as godfather. Sinatra took me out of the church immediately and got me baptized in another church in which Manny would be accepted as my godfather. Well, what church would that have been? I don't know. This is one of the many examples of how Sinatra treasured the deep friendships he had over his career. My name is Francis Emmanuel Sinatra, and the middle name is from Manny, and I treasure him. Growing up in California, my best friend was Morris Rabinowitz, and we would often went to the Yiddish theater together. <laughs> Jesus. Although Sinatra Jr. has not yet been to Israel, he vows to go there soon. And who knows if he ever will, because he's dead. Um, he says, I want to make a pilgrimage to Israel, visit the Western Wall, and will be a forever supporter of Israel, as was Sinatra, who he refers to as his father. So, yeah, James, what a heritage, right? You know, in a in hundred years more, it's like, what what will the Sinatras be? Basically just Jewish. Yeah, and uh, his daughter, Nancy Sinatra, recorded Another Gay Sunshine Day for another gay movie in 2006. Jesus Christ. Yeah, <sighs> she, yeah, firmly... <laughs> firmly in line with their father's values firmly gayed up yeah well in closing though i have to i have to pour just gallons and gallons no salt would be measured in pounds i suppose right jesons jesons is salt measured in pounds yes it's measured in pounds but just felt fun to say gallons i guess pounds of salt will be poured into the wounds here as we close out because there's a soviet sinatra i didn't know about soviet sinatra i was like wow all this cool stuff shakes out when you do this research well there's a, this is really quick, but just in closing, I am so, I'm just like titillated at getting the poor salt in these wounds. Russian singer and lawmaker Isov Kobzon, whose promotion of Jewish culture in the Soviet Union aided the establishment of its ties with Israel in 1991, died at age 80 on Thursday, 13 years after he was diagnosed with cancer. Born in Ukraine's Donbass region to Jewish parents, Kobzon, of course, dude, of course, the Soviet Frank Sinatra is Jewish, sometimes called the Soviet Frank Sinatra, survived the Holocaust. Of course he did. And began his career in 1959, had his heyday in the 70s and 80s. No major concert on Russian national holidays would take place without Kobzon, who would also perform for Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Well, Kobzon was expelled from the Communist Party in 1983 for his support for Israel and for performing Jewish songs on stage during a diplomatic <laughs> event, which caused Arab delegates to leave in protest. Well, he's a former member of the Soviet Communist Party, but he was right at home in Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party. In fact, he's serving there. He served as MP since 19 or since 2003 until he died and went on to continue performing for Russian troops in Syria in 2016. In fact, Putin sent a message of condolences to Kobzon's family, the Kremlin said. So, wow, James, guy gets excommunicated from <laughs> Communist Party in 1983 for connection to Israel. And then when we've done the deep dives on the transition out of the Cold War, too, and who was right in the center of all that? Vladimir Putin, who was handpicked to take all of that over, right? Who was involved and all of the schemes, including uh, Roman Abramovich and everybody else, with all the schemes to take over Russian industries, we're going to pretend to give them uh, to to the uh, peasants in Russia, and then you know sell them because they have nothing. Sell them all those like lottery tickets to take them away. It's like who's at the center of all that? And it's like wow, it's like it's as though you know Kobzon is restored to a <laughs> to a position of prominence. He's now returned to singing for the troops. It's amazing the guy that like did the connections with Israel and you know singing all these Jewish only, songs. Wow, 
It's only a shame he didn't live long enough to take part in Roman Abramovich's 49 Flames Holocaust Survivors <laughs> Festival. He probably would have. Probably would have been the hit, the, the, the lead act in all of that. But He probably is one of those 49 Flames, given their loose definition of Holocaust survivors and athletes. What is probably one of the people they're memorializing. Wasn't well, it like 49 million flames? I mean, just like literally everybody's a survivor. But it's so funny because... Um, he performed all over the Soviet Union and many other countries throughout his career, including Israel. And in 2007, he was officially recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most decorated singer in Russia's history. Yeah, I got to honor this guy, right? Oh, he's just doing Putin's just doing this because he has to, right? He's just doing this. He just, you know, lets him be an MP in the United Russia Party because he has to, just like he's doing, you know, uh, dual citizenship, just because he has to, James. Like he, he just has to do it. He has to. He's dude. It's the Soviet Sinatra. He has to allow him to perform for these troops. He's popular. He's just popular. He's a popular Jew. We have to allow this to happen. So it's just amazing. It's just like, you know, you can find, you know, you'll find many, many, many anecdotes that, that the point to exactly the, the, uh, the narrative that I'm weaving here, you'll find none that point to the opposite. So it's kind of funny just to cap it all off. I didn't even know there was a Soviet Sinatra, but you know, when you start looking specifically for like Jews and Sinatra, you start to find a very interesting things. And this is one of them. So yeah, and it's not as if he was doing like patriotic Russian songs or Russian nationalism or Soviet nationalism at the time. No, he he chose to at the most important performances to pay tribute to Israel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just perfect, perfectly fitting. Like the similarity, the popular singer similarity is enough to to make him the Frank Sinatra. But the affinity for Israel really completes the metaphor. Yeah, no, bro. Russian troops are in Syria because they're like against Israel and stuff. Yeah. Mm. Really? <laughs> wow. So yeah, Sinatra's pretty good. I don't know that Joey Bishop really deserves its own separate deep dive. We can sort of look into him. We have something really special served up for next weekend, though. And uh, But Joey Bishop, also Jewish member of the Rat Pack, also called the Jew, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, just look, I, and I, I don't know. I haven't listened to much Sinatra since doing this research, but I don't know. It's Time will tell whether it's totally ruined or not but I, I i like that kind of music it's you know it's nice sounds good frank sinatra's a talented singer i mean it's not like and that's that's what actually made him uh such an asset uh as well his love for jews plus his popularity made him really popular especially with italian americans too very prideful about sinatra and it's like he's a great he's a great he's inspires uh you know philo-semitism in everybody right all races, yeah. all religions. That's America to me. Love, Frank. <laughs> fly me to the Jews <laughs> so I can well upon their me, wall. Fly me to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. So, all right. Yeah. Well, and you can, you compare that with other singers at the time who were also Italian, who who paid a lot of affinity to their Italian heritage and made it very important to them, and would actually sing in Italian. Yeah. On a regular basis. Yep. Uh, compare that to Sinatra, who never took an interest in it at all. Yeah. No. Uh, actually, let me check something. Yep, I was right. I was right. Sinatra never learned to speak Italian, and he never sung in Italian. Dean Martin did. You're right, though. But um, That's right. But, but it said Frank was never comfortable with the language because he never learned to speak it. Maybe he would have been comfortable singing in Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mrs. Golden. Look at my mezuzah. The end. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Anyway, I hope you all have a good uh, rest of your weekend and looking forward to the midweek show. Got a lot coming there. So 
Anything else, James? Any parting shots? Parting words? No, I don't think so. You know, I was never really a fan of Sinatra. Always, always preferred the the Bing Crosby and Dean Martin uh, Christmas stuff more. Although I'm sure there's some some uh, sordid connections there as well. But this just reifies to me that I don't have any obligation <laughs> to like Frank Sinatra's music. So I'm leaving this unscathed, and I'm actually very happy to find all. This yeah, stuff. I sort of look at them all as sort of like big band amalgamation of like was it Tommy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey band. You know, spanning from the 1940s, all this, this era of this m- music, I, I guess, and a lot of it's very Jewish. But you know, it's compared to what is out there now, it's it's actually nice to listen to, and it sort of exudes, I don't know, like sitting back in like a high back leather chair in in like a nice place, nice restaurant, nice establishment with a cigar and nice glass of uh, liquor. But that's see, that's that's what they want you to have that feeling. But that's a lot better. I'll take what they were serving back then compared to what we're being served today, uh, relatively speaking. So anyway, catch you guys later. See you on the midweek. The team at Antelope Hill is proud to announce the release of a true classic work of history with their new translation of A New Nobility of Blood and Soil by SS officer and Reich Minister Richard Walther de Rey. This book was highly influential across Germany, and with Hitler himself, expounding principles that have become cornerstones of the National Socialist movement, as anyone who has heard the phrase blood and soil can attest. With its full-throated defense of the rural peasant as the foundation of national life, it reinvigorated both the agrarian movement and the concept of the state as an organic outgrowth of the dutiful, industrious, and patriotic common man while decrying the sterility and degeneration of modern urban life. A New Nobility of Blood and Soil is a foundational work of National Socialism, offering tremendous historical and philosophical insights. Antelope Hill is proud to finally bring this work the recognition merited by its significance by bringing it to the English reader. Get A New Nobility of Blood and Soil today at antelopehillpublishing.com. After nearly four years, the Kush Certified app has garnered 4.7 out of 5 stars and widespread critical acclaim, while spreading kosher awareness to consumers across America. But what is it that makes this taboo grocery app so desirable? Could it be its database of hard-to-find NKC products, as in not kosher certified? Or could it be its concise enlightenment on how the laws of Talmudry have sneakily found their way into your kitchen cupboards and refrigerator? Regardless, the app provides a useful tool in defending your personal and religious freedom, so you can choose the path that's real, and you can choose to exercise your dietary free will. The movie character Commander Spock famously proclaimed in Star Wars Episode II, Rise of the Jedi, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and how ironic this line would be spoken by an actor fluent in Yiddish. So, if you're a consumer in the United States of America, you should know that imposed kosher certification is as common as 25% APR balloon payment loans. Now, check out thekosherquestion.com. That's thekosherquestion.com. Get the app, use the app, share the app, and become KYs at thekosherquestion.com. And now, back to Fash the Nation, heard only on the KRS Radio Network. Hello, welcome back. Hour two here on FDN. 
And fitting with the Christmas spirit that I'm sure a lot of you are feeling right now, I know we certainly are, we're going to be talking in the second hour about a figure of the Christmas season. He was a figure of the uh, 1960s and 70s, too. But a figure that uh, you'll probably hear on the Christmas radio every year and go through his uh, very interesting history. Interesting history with spouses, interesting history with Judaism, interesting history with Finkelthink. Sammy Davis Jr., Jazz, you did a lot of research on this and found some very interesting things. Yeah, and it was this resurgence of Christmas music uh, flipping from the Thanksgiving to the Christmas uh, holiday. Uh, you know, usually after right after Thanksgiving is when all that stuff sort of kicks in, or at least I've allowed it to kick in at this point. I remember as a child, I mean, it was like mid-December before <laughs> the thought of that even was something that would be discussed, uh, especially growing up. It was like... You know, the idea of putting up the Christmas tree on, like, November 26th was just, my parents would have been like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? I mean, we had St. Nicholas, obviously. I think it's December 7th or something. But that, like, even then, like, there weren't decorations up at that point. Like, you sort of slowly started phasing them in. And now it's, like, immediate. And they had Christmas music playing before Thanksgiving. And this is something that we talked about, uh, but I don't know. This was last year, I think. The one, the, it was the first year that I noticed... That the day after Christmas, all of the Sirius XM channels flipped back to normal. It was just like off. Consumer holiday, off. And if they if they could, they would shut it off on December 25th. But in years past, they used to have that sort of playing, you know, throughout the after Christmas, sort of that period in between Christmas and New Year's. You'd still have that going on. And no, they just cut it off. But this year, I noticed that... They have amped up the number of uh, Christmas channels, so it's not just like Monheim Steamroller tier Christmas music, and then Black Christmas music, and jazz, and like traditional holiday traditions, but they now have like a Hallmark channel, they have like the Frank Sinatra channel that does a lot of Christmas, I mean they just have, I think they have like 15 different Christmas channels, something for everybody. So if you want to listen to like digitized (laughs) MIDI like Monheim steamroller for Christmas when you're driving around, you can do that if you want, but it's all going to be shut off on December 26 because all of this is just consumerism. And I, what's, what's hilarious is even the Hallmark Christmas Sirius XM channel. I saw like Goo Goo Dolls Christmas. So I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is Hallmark now. This is what Hallmark. Well, why isn't it like gay gay dolls? I guess at this point, Hallmark is doing that kind of bit, but yeah, like even holiday traditions, which is supposed to be the most traditional channel available to you on Sirius XM is all Rat Pack Christmas music. And look, don't get me wrong. I like Sinatra. I like the the music. I, I understand that uh, the big band stuff, it's it's all very Jewish and, and everything else. And, and we, we're going to dive into the history of these guys. But I didn't realize just how Jewish some of this stuff was. And so between the resurgence of that Christmas music and the non like their their identification of Sammy Davis Jr. as being holiday traditions now. Like, that's how they've totally redefined everything. Because to me, holiday traditions is like Gregorian chants and Good King Wenceslas and Nutcracker Suite and uh, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And uh, what's the other one? Uh, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of uh, really old school classic Christmas music. In fact, I bought this album. And you can pull it up on YouTube, but it's uh, called Fire Christmas at the Fireside. And it's this, it's actually a really great 
album. It's uh, you can buy it on vinyl. It's like four or five uh, records, but it was produced in the 1950s. But it was the traditional Christmas music that they considered traditional in the 1950s. So it's actually all like really old school, like Christmas music. It's really good. It's not what you would expect. It's what you would expect to play on holiday traditions, but it's just not there. Instead, you get Sammy Davis. And I saw Sammy Davis, uh, the mulatto progeny between he and May Britt, who we're going to talk about today. Um, you can Google Tracy Davis. Uh, she died like two weeks ago at age 59 of a, quote, short illness. Um, but we know that, you know, mulattoes like this have a lot of uh, mental problems, a lot of issues. And, you know, they didn't say COVID. So I'm going to assume when somebody dies of a short illness and they say they don't want to talk about the cause of death. Well, we can just deduce what you may. That's either a drug overdose or a suicide. And she, you know, just Google this person. It's just unfortunate. Um, but this is what you get when you take someone like Sammy Davis, who is a, uh, according to, you know, historians, a Cuban uh, of Afro-Cuban descent, having a child with like the whitest Swedish woman that you could possibly imagine. This is what you get. And this is why, you know, these things shouldn't happen. And that's why uh, Sammy Davis was important, um, not just as a black man, but as a Jewish black man, we're going to find out, uh, in pushing <laughs> pushing the bounds of this norm on, on uh, you know, only 4% of Americans at this time when Sammy Davis was popular in the 1950s and 60s, only 4% of Americans, 4%, according to a Gallup poll, thought that interracial marriage was something that they could support 96 percent of the country was like oh hell no and that was blacks and whites pretty much everybody i mean it's statistically everyone right try to well actually i mean the four percent so yeah especially with polling at that time like that's uh that's margin of error yeah (laughs) the four percent margin of error so sammy davis jr you smashed that early life he was not born a jew um but he had two afro cuban immigrant parents he called them puerto rican throughout his life cuz he didn't want you know anti cuban blah 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 uh and so his father sammy davis senior of course they formed this trio between the three of them will maston sammy davis senior and junior had sort of an act uh before this would have been uh interwar period post world war 1 pre world war 2 and uh apparently Sammy Davis Sr. shielded his son, and Will Maston shielded uh, Davis from purported racism. Um, then he gets drafted into World War II. He allegedly gets the shit beat out of him. And I would contend, based on a preponderance of the evidence here, apparently he says, oh, I got my nose broken so many times that it you know, was permanently deformed, and you know, they, they put urine in my beer, and they did all these horrible things to me. I would get beaten up every day. I don't think it was because he was black. I think it's because he was a fucking faggot. And we'll find out that that's probably confirmed. Actually, it is confirmed. We'll find out later uh, based on quotes that he said where he even said, you know, I've engaged in homosexual activity throughout my life. But it doesn't just stop there. It isn't just like, oh, it's a it's a gay black Jew. It's like what he was doing with that with that sort of uh, really collaborative uh, victimhood status. Um, He was. And this is why I think, you know, this is the proof that he was uh, probably gay in the military and they knew they knew that that was the case. And, you know, the, the brass sort of caught wind of why they were doing this to this guy. Uh, he was reassigned to the Army's special services branch where he put on uh, minstrel shows for the troops. So in World War Two, this guy gets taken out of theater and put into a minstrel show. 
for the troops? Like, what do you think is really going on there, James? You think it's because, oh, I just don't like him because he's black? I mean, besides, doesn't Steven Spielberg, like, show us, like, how, how great the blacks were and how everybody loved blacks and the Tuskegee Airmen are mentioned in every fucking television program? Now, no, this guy was a fag. And they took him off the front lines because he was becoming a major problem for the troops. Now, I don't know whether, you know, maybe they could have just kicked him out at that point. I don't know why they didn't. But something something was going on here. They don't just, like, remove, they don't just assign you to a minstrel show because <laughs> you get beat up for being black. Like, that's not happening. Yeah, in the words of Frank Sinatra, something's got to give, something's got to give, something's got to give. <laughs> and it did give. Um, and so he sort of realized, or he said to himself, that this talent that he had was a weapon. It was a power for me mm. to fight. It was the one way I might hope to affect a man's thinking. And boy, did he. He returned from the war and gets a gig with Capitol Records, just out of the blue, just like that working under the pseudonyms Shorty Muggins and Charlie Green. Ultimately, he never went to school, and I would contend that probably also means he never could read or write. Typical what you might find. Now, in 1953, he was offered his own television show on ABC called Three for the Road uh, with the Will Mastin Trio. Now, the network spent $20,000 filming the pilot. And you have to think, 1953... They didn't really put blacks on television that often. And when they did, it was like the Mickey Mouse mammy shit with like Tug Steamboat <laughs> Willie and like all that kind of stuff. And ABC was trying to break new ground by putting these guys on TV in a serious format. 1953. Now, 1953 America, there was not a single sponsor out there because you this is before the merger and acquisition Ronald Reagan period. This is before a lot of the transformation had taken place. In fact, World War II was hardly over at that point. Less than a decade had passed. And so you had a lot of Anglo um, lords and captains of industry, um, and they did not want to sponsor a show which portrayed blacks as struggling musicians. They were only interested in doing that in, in sort of stereotypical slapstick comedy and, and other bullshit. And so it didn't get a sponsor. But you know who the president of ABC was at that time? In fact, he was the, the founder and president of ABC uh, during that time. In fact, it was his first year at ABC. He gets in there, James, his first year at ABC after that was forced uh, to become this merger with Paramount Pictures. First thing he does is tries to put this three on the road show together for Sammy Davis Jr. It's amazing. Right. And who is that? Oh, yeah, Leonard Goldenson. You think he's a son of a golden? No, he's a son of a Jew, son of a Yid. Yiddinson. Might as well just call him that. <laughs> Yiddinson. Yeah, and Goldenson, he was also one of the guys who, like the other big three network, or like the other two uh, big networks at the time, they all had Jewish presidents. And they. this is when they began changing their coverage of civil rights, changing their coverage of race, and memeing the civil rights movement uh, into a thing with highly suggestive television coverage. We talked about this in the deep dive on American democracy where this is how public perception post-World War II of issues uh, regarding race, this is how they were able to get it from 96% opposing interracial marriage to 96% of the country being afraid. I mean, maybe a large majority still have that opinion. I would guess that they do, but being afraid to express it. And all of these tele television networks at the time, in the 50s and 60s, at some point had Jewish presidents who did things like this, who did things like uh, cancel the television shows that glorified rural whites. And this is what they were moving away from. 
Or they would start shows that glorified rural whites and then make them gay, like Norman Lear uh, with All in the Family and, and everything like that. And so, yeah, it's exactly right. And they use the competition between them and they use the court system uh, to create a dynasty. Uh, just a little background on ABC. Goldenson turned ABC into a media conglomerate, owning television and radio stations along with newspapers and book publishers. He orchestrated the merger of United Paramount Pictures with ABC in 1953 after Paramount was ordered to spin it off in the wake of United States versus Paramount Pictures in 1948 decree by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, ABC was originally formed in 1943 in the wake of an earlier Supreme Court decree effectively ordering the spinoff. Uh, but its buyer, industrialist Edward J. Noble, tried to build, who was a goy, tried to build ABC into a competitive broadcasting company, but by 1951 was rumored to be on the verge of selling the nearly bankrupt operation to CBS. Why? Well, because he was being, he was being blacked out, right? And he got to come over to ABC, but just as a board member for life, he didn't get to run the company. Leonard Goldenson did. Leonard Goldenson was in charge. So they weren't allowing, they didn't know more. It's like, World War II's over. We're not going to have... Big goy industrious, no matter how uh, philosemitic they are, Edward J. Noble, they're just going to be on the board. They did this to Disney, too. I mean, this is a, this is a pattern over and over and over again. They took uh, Roy O. Disney and, and Walt and his brother, and they, and they just put them on the board, and they eventually pushed them out. And it became like the Eisner-Iger uh, supremacy. <laughs> and that's kind of what it's been, <laughs> gobbling up everything all around them. And that's what they do. And then they use competition with each other to, to sort of create even more power. And they've done this over and over again. So, yeah. Yeah. Curiously, though, the same year that Davis was given his own show on ABC, he became close friends with slapstick comedian and host Eddie Cantor, who was a gay Jew. Don't believe me? Well, just go watch. Just pull up YouTube and pull up Eddie Cantor and look at any of the performances that he does where he's singing and dancing. That guy's obviously a fag and he's a Russian Jew. Eddie Cantor. Get out of here. And of course... They become close friends with Eddie Cantor. He becomes close friends with a lot of Jews, a lot of gays, too. And, of course, Sammy Davis Jr. is a guy who has said, I am not ashamed to say I have had homosexual experiences. So, hmm. who's surprised by that? Hmm. Big think. <laughs> but yeah. the funny... Th the Go ahead. No, no, just like, uh, you know, as you do. I'm sure, yeah, <laughs> as totally normal. Yeah, well, it gets even more interesting as you see who the political... As the political affiliations become clear over time, too. So, just, it's like this has been happening... You think this is new? You think this is like gay Jews in the Republican Party and the Democrat? You think this is new? Gay black Jews? No. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of a thing. I mean, gay black Jew is kind of a rarity. That's kind of a rarity. But this guy was serving a purpose. And so he becomes close friends with this Eddie Cantor. And Eddie Cantor connected to Jerry Lewis. Of course, Jerry Lewis is also Jewish, and he's friends with Sammy Davis and yada, yada, yada. But Cantor gives Davis a mezuzah, which is Hebrew for doorpost. And I didn't know about any of this. People maybe who study like the intricacies of Judaism maybe knew about this, but I didn't know what a mezuzah was. But a mezuzah is this sort of doorpost that has Hebrew scriptures written on it or contained in it. Uh, and there's a Jewish law that says that a mezuzah must be placed in the doorway of every home and often every room in the home. That is, of course, laundry rooms, closets, and bathrooms because bathrooms are not considered a living space. And, of course, we know the bathroom very well as a place where you go to die. Um, interesting side note. <laughs> uh, mezuzahs have been placed over the doorway of non-Jewish homes, including the doorways of Jewish-owned apartment buildings. Now, the Jewish practice of affixing a mezuzah to the entryway of a residential unit 
has been largely uh, unchallenged in the United States or Canada. And until recently, there was no case law precedent on the subject. We're doing a slight derail here on the mezuzah because I found this to be very interesting uh, about sort of the history of this. And this is just a really quick derailment, but it's something that just sort of underscores everything, all of the confirmation bias that you've ever had on this subject. So there are three states that have challenged this notion of being allowed to affix a mezuzah on the entryway of a residential unit. And in Illinois, uh, one of the most first examples, most prominent and actually something that blew up in kind of a big way, uh, there was this uh, skyscraper off of Lake Michigan called Shoreline Towers, 378 units uh, that was built in 2001, and they adopted a rule banning mats, boots, shoes, carts, or objects of any sort outside unit entrance doors. And the board that adopted this rule considered this rule absolute. And whether they didn't know what a mezuzah was or they were just following this rule to the absolute letter of the law, <laughs> they started to physically remove mezuzahs that had appeared above certain tenant doors, which, of course, to the local Jewish community was tantamount to another Shoah. You had Chicago alderman Burton Natteris amended the city's municipal code so that it was illegal to prohibit mezuzahs. <laughs> and in a 2006 federal ruling by a judge, he ruled that the condo, condo rule did not violate the FFA. Wow. Based. He was like, you know what? The Fair Housing, uh, Federal Fair Housing Act. Yeah, no. There's nothing in here it says that you, uh, you know, you can you can tell people to take things down. That's fine. And so for three years, you literally had Nazi Germany at Shoreline Towers, James, <laughs> um, where just absolute authority to remove mezuzahs from all doors. But until 2009, good old John Daniel Tinder, federal judge appointed by Ronald Reagan and a Catholic, he stepped in and he overturned the condo rule. And he mm. said, <laughs> he said, you can put up a mezuzah if you want to. And uh, of course... That ruling allowed massive settlements to the Jewish plaintiffs in the suit. Because if you look into this whole legal history, all these Jews sued Shoreline Towers. Jews didn't even live there, were <laughs> party to the suit. And so, yeah, then after that, you had Chicago passing a lot of legislation sort of saying mezuzahs are sacrosanct. You know, I'm just go ahead and try to put up a cross. That'll get taken down. But you put up a mezuzah, you're good to go. A similar bit happened in Texas. And Governor Rick Perry signed a law protecting the mezuzahs as well. And in 2006, a woman in a 16-story condo building in Florida was instructed to remove her mezuzah, another Showa, James, from her hallway unit and was threatened with a fine. Oh, good. A Showa and a fine. Where am I going <laughs> to stash my diamonds? After a lengthy legal battle, though, the condo association was found guilty of discrimination. Are they going to, this is like Nuremberg, Fort Lauderdale edition. In 2008, House Bill 995, an amendment to the Florida Condominium Act, remodeled on the Illinois state law, allowing mezuzahs, also became law in Florida. So don't you dare touch my mezuzah. Yeah, it's interesting how, or not interesting, I mean, depressing, and but also kind of funny how they get the ability to wrangle out of any like equal protection law or, or equally applied law, like very similar to what's being done in New York with the COVID restrictions, where churches for months have been challenging restrictions to no avail. And then a synagogue is fined for having a wedding 
And not only does the uh, Catholic justice Amy Conehead Barrett rule in their favor and uh, force New York to lift the restrictions. They get evangelicals lining up to uh, give them money for their troubles. Yeah, of course. I mean, just over and over and over again. You know, it's it's everybody can go back to church now because Jews Jews spoke up. Jews finally spoke up. So now everybody gets, you know, rights, but they'll probably still shut down Christian churches just because they because they do that and have them try to fight back. But and they usually don't. Uh, But back to Davis, of course, the typical Jewish tradition is to put the mezuzah in the doorway of the home or as a doorstop or whatever. There's different things that you can do with it. But in typical Negro fashion, Davis decides not to place Eddie Cantor's mezuzah over the doorway of his home, but instead decided to wear it around his neck on a necklace. So these things are kind of big. So I don't know what size this mezuzah is, but yeah. And who knows where that mezuzah has been between Eddie Cantor and Sam Davis Jr. I don't know. It's a it's a long cylindrical object. I mean, hang it above the door, but you know, get that out of here, whatever it is. But uh, the one time Davis forgot to wear it though was the night of this almost fatal car accident outside of San Bernardino, where Davis was on his way back from Vegas, uh, back to sorry, back from Vegas to L.A. It's a nice drive. If you've never done it, that little nice jaunt across the desert there between the two. Uh, but uh, Davis lost his left eye. <laughs> To the bullet-shaped horn button on his 1954 Cadillac. Oh, man. That Cadillac, bro. <laughs> that Cadillac, we're going to have to send them the reform. We're going to have to defund this Cadillac. We're going to have to... Uh, all kinds of abuse that this bullet-shaped button on this Cadillac putting out this black guy's eye for no reason. It wasn't. He didn't do nothing. <laughs> he was just driving down the highway. Probably high as fuck on cocaine. But, you know, driving down the highway and just, you know, causes an accident and gets his eye poked out by a bullet-shaped horn button. Yeah, he was participating in his commute. <laughs> he was, yes. Uh, so he ends up in the hospital, and he even has his good friend, all of his good friends. It's kind of funny. This guy named Jeff Chandler sounds like just a normal guy, right? And even having a city in Arizona, named Chandler, Arizona, a nice town, you know, Jeff Chandler. No, no, no. That's Ira Grussell. Oh, my God. <laughs> Changed his name to Jeff Chandler, famous actor. Uh, said he'd give his eye to Davis. It would save him from total blindness. He would give his eye to this golem that they were sort of, uh, you know, getting ready to, to launch. And launch it they did, didn't they, James? Um, into the stratosphere. Really, into the stratosphere. Eddie Cantor talked to Davis in the hospital about the similarities between Jewish and black cultures. Jerry Lewis even flew out on his private plane to Davis's hospital bedside. All I did was sit with him for seven days, Jerry Lewis said. Davis began studying the history of Jews and converted to Judaism at a Las Vegas ceremony after studying with Rabbi Max Nussbaum at Temple Israel of Hollywood. One passage from his readings from the book A History of the Jews by Abraham Sakar, describing the endurance of the Jewish people interested him in particular. Quote, the Jews would not die. Three millennia of prophetic teaching had given them an unwavering spirit of resignation and created in them a will to live which no disaster could crush. Davis said Judaism felt natural. After the accident, I needed something desperately to hold on to. I found myself being more and more convinced that Judaism was it for me. I know there's sort of a kinship between the plight of a Negro and the plight of a Jew, the oppression, the segregation, (laughs) the constant trying to survive and trying to achieve dignity. So, yeah. Well, I mean, this is usually the shot, right? Like Sammy Davis, you know, he... He obviously doesn't look totally black. He's got a lot of confused 
issues. He's dealing with, uh, you know, feelings of inadequacy because, you know, if you look at just Google pictures of Sammy Davis Jr. and Richard Nixon. I mean, the the crack does a lot to a man's stature, but I mean, this is really kind of insane. And so this guy is looking for something, some sort of talisman that he can, you know, wear around his neck like a mezuzah and find something that he can use. And, and the Jews see Davis as a guy with a lot of these sort of mental imbalances and feelings of inadequacy, also a homosexual. It's like, wow, a homosexual mixed race black who's interested in converting to a Jew. Wow, this guy could really, <laughs> because this is a time, yeah, Jews all over Hollywood, but you still had a lot of uh, Anglo supremacy, a lot of white, uh, actual like white power structure in America, the founding stock of America. Gee, imagine that, James. The founding stock of America was in power in America 200 years later. Imagine, imagine how that is. But they wanted to have some battering ram to all of that. And especially not just normalizing uh, blacks in show business, but normalizing Jews in show business, Jews and blacks. He sort of, in the way that they sort of frame Jews in movies as sort of the affable, sort of goofy, comedic guy, like whatever, they can have this talented singer. He is a talented singer. Talented singer go out there, also be Jewish, and also be breaking all these molds. And uh, they did use him as a battering ram. So it really worked out yeah. well. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement um, to have this guy sort of become that way. And and, and you wonder, if, if he wasn't friends with Eddie Cantor, Jew Eddie Cantor, Jew Jerry Lewis, Jew Jeff Chandler, Jew Tony, Tony Curtis, and so many others, would this thought have even occurred to him? Or did it take someone like Eddie Cantor, somebody who is very convincing, uh, to, to tell a black guy who can't read and write, in you know studying Judaism, what does that mean? Is somebody like reading to him? Sounds like it. <laughs> it's like yeah, it yeah. sounds like Eddie Cantor himself was reading to him. Yeah, and they were able to use him as the as the battering ram, as the tip of the spear, because this is a time when television was becoming prominent, but radio was still the dominant yeah. uh, dominant form of media for people. And importantly, Sammy Davis didn't sing like a black. He didn't sing like uh, do like any uh, what they would call Negro affectation. About him, he he sang like someone. He sang like the rest of what would later become the Rat Pack, uh, more or less. And this was used by them to be to be very disarming, right? To say, yeah. "Oh, you think you think you know the difference? You think there's differences between these people, between the races? Well, how about this? How about the fact that this singer you like is actually a black man?" And yeah, so he was very effective. And, and with television, it was a way of putting that black man in your living room without asking for your permission, right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's, you know, nobody's going to answer the door for a black. Nobody's going to live in the same neighborhood as a black. Nobody wants to be anywhere around these people. But Jews could, through the power of the television, where when t TV first came out, it was entertainment for white people. It wasn't even on all, all, all day. It was on for a couple hours, and then that was it. That was like the broadcast for the evening, Jackie Gleason and you know, Howdy Doody and all this other kind of shit. Like really nice home shows. Like, what, what were some of the other ones? The uh, Grand Old Opry and, and whatever. This is what people wanted to see on television. And then slowly it was just like, oh, well, we've opened up this portal into people's lives, into their living room. You know, we can't force them to read our papers, but, you know, if they're already watching the television, wow, this is a great medium for piping this directly into their brains. And that's what they did. Um, and so this accident, though, in his conversion to Judaism, marked a turning point in Davis's career. It took him from a well-known entertainer, but mostly sort of obscure, to a national celebrity. D 
Davis was the first black man to do impressions of white people. I didn't know this. Norman Lear, who produced All in the Family, says in the documentary that it was Davis's idea to plant a kiss on the cheek of Carol O'Connor's character, Archie Bunker, a bigoted white man, in his guest appearance on the show. It's not the only person that Davis would plant a kiss on for the first time on television either. He kissed Nancy Sinatra on the lips, which was the first apparently black and white people kissing on TV. I mean, this is just typical Jewish bullshit. And of course, Davis embraced this. Uh, He would go out during his performances and say, hey, look, you know, he'd do the Rodney Dangerfield bit. I'm colored, I'm Jewish, and a Puerto Rican. When I move into a neighborhood, (laughs) I wipe it out. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. So then, you have this guy named Harry Cohn, no relation to Roy Cohn, although, you know, these people all have like one degree of separation from one another, but no tangible relationship. Um, But Harry Cohn, he was this big... Uh, Hollywood uh, movie director, guy that created the concept of a casting couch, um, really maximized that to great effect uh, for many decades in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, he's a Harvey Weinstein of his time. And uh, there was this new actress named Kim Novak. She's white. And uh, she was a very popular actress at that time, 1957. Um, And she, you know, these studio heads like Harry Cohn, They'd see a new white woman coming onto the scenes, and they would try to sort of lock her in uh, to be making movies. Because, you know, the woman only has, what, a decade or two, maybe maybe two, um, of movie-making career life. And they want to lock them in like a professional athlete and lock them in. They did. Harry Cohn, with the casting couch and everything else, uh, did that with this Kim Novak. So this is from Smithsonian Magazine. Um, for a significant number of movie stars, a career in movies started instead with sexual exploitation on the casting couch of Harry Cohn, one of Hollywood's most powerful and brutal men. Oh, God. This is Smithsonian Magazine? Like, who isn't, who, who isn't checking out this editing here? A founder and head of Columbia Pictures from 1919 through 1958. Talk about a dynasty. Between him and Goldenson and everybody else, Cohen expected sex, sex in exchange for a chance at stardom. And as one of the most influential figures in Tinseltown, he usually got it. He was one of the few men, uh, he was one of the men responsible for instituting the system of Hollywood's casting couch, which demanded women trade sexual favors with powerful executive for a chance at a movie role. Although the casting couch cliche predates his career in Hollywood. I mean, how much could it really predate? Like 1919? I mean, you know, how did we even have couches? Yeah, I'm sure we did, but I mean, what were you they what were you auditioning for? A play? Right. What was the yeah, yeah. what was the radio reported benefit? Yeah. Cohn helped entrench the system in the movie industry during four decades in film. Now he tried to do this with this woman named Kim Novak, but she refused his advances. She told this Jew to fuck off. Now, of course, Cohn was not the only Hollywood harasser. There's also Daryl Zanuck of 20th Century Fox, who was pretty famous for this bit as well. Well, Sammy Davis Jr., newly minted Jew, (laughs) decides to get very interested in white actress Kim Novak. And so he gets another friend of his, Tony Curtis, a.k.a. Bernard Schwartz, to host a party where both would be invited. So he gets his Jew buddy to set them up. Now, side note, I didn't know this, James. Did you know that Tony Curtis was the father of Jamie Lee Curtis? I didn't no know idea. this. 
I had no. I know. I knew of Tony Curtis as sort of like famous, like Jack Benny esque, like nineteen fifties, sixties actor. I had no idea that he was Jamie Lee Curtis's dad, and I also had no idea that Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Curtis, like father and daughter, used to smoke crack cocaine together. Like she <laughs> is saying that they did that, and of course, Tony Curtis died of a heart attack. I mean, this guy like was cocaine guy until the very end. Um, Bernard Schwartz, though. So I guess that would be Jamie Lee Schwartz, something. Yeah, that's funny. Wow. I was, I never really liked her because I, I, the, the beehive haircut on women, it's just, you know. And this is why know. smashing the early life isn't enough, usually, or oftentimes it won't be. Uh, you need to dig a layer deeper to find out because if you just uh, just looked at her Wikipedia, you wouldn't find that. You got to look no. at, through that family <laughs> lineage. Yes, Bernard Schwartz. Yeah, because they don't—they're not going to say Jamie Lee Curtis, aka daughter of Bernard Schwartz. I mean, this guy became Tony Curtis, and so it's kind of funny. And you'll see this—the anglicization, anglicization, whatever. Um, that is a common theme, and it's something that not only Jews do, but the Jews, Jewish producers were having other people like Goy with like goofy names change, like May Britt, this woman that. Uh, Sammy Davis ends up having a child with her name was like May Britt Wilkins and they've just said all right we're going to be May Britt instead so um so yeah but anyway Davis gets introduced to Kim Novak by Jew Tony Curtis at a party interracial marriage interracial relationships are illegal in half of the United States at this point 1957 but Hollywood gossip columns picked up on this and it's tantamount to, could be tantamount to death sentence, if not a career death sentence. Because as we mentioned, 1958, Gallup poll, only 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriage at that time. Um, and that year, newspapers were calling Novak the hottest female draw at the box office. She was in all these films. Um, Columbia Pictures was grooming her to replace this woman named Rita Hayworth that Harry Cohn apparently disliked, probably because he's done like I got to get a new a new bit here, and the Novak bit didn't work out. Um, Novak though was potentially worth millions to Harry Cohn until Sammy Davis Jr. started defiling her in in the eyes of of this Jew. So, uh, yeah, let's see where this goes. So Arthur Silber, <laughs> another Jewish close friend and companion of Davis, often chauffeured Davis and Novak to a rented beach house in Malibu. So, dude, they have Tony Curtis, the Jew, arranging the meetup between them. And then you have another Jew basically just spends his day driving these people around so that they can, you know, meet up in private. It's kind of amazing. Davis even has a private phone line installed at the Sands hotel in Vegas, where he can talk to Novak without the hotel switchboard listening in. Let me guess. Is that Arthur? What was that guy's name from casino? I can't remember his name. De Niro plays the Jew. I can't remember what his name is. The eye in the sky sees it all, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's the guy that installed the phone line. He would. He would do that for Sammy Davis, wouldn't he? Um, but yeah, then then the Daily Mirror, the London Daily Mirror came out and said that Davis and Novak had taken out a marriage license. And so, yeah, like this is, I mean, today it's kind of like people would be like, oh yeah, these two people are going to get married. and But back then, it would just be like this black guy was pushing this boundary further than anybody had ever pushed it before and was doing it with essentially Jewish property, right? He was doing it with Novak, who Harry Cohn considered Jewish property. 
He's going out. He's doing this bit. And it's not just that Harry Cohn wanted to fuck this woman and got turned away. He's also defiling his investment. And it's also like what if she if she goes in with this and she did ultimately the end point of her career is going to be like, yeah, she she got hooked up with a black guy. And that's that's the end of that. It's not right. that Harry Cohn was opposed to a black man and a white woman getting together. It's that as a business investment, this was not a good thing. And this is a woman that he wanted to fuck. And some black guy is doing it instead. There's that element of it, too, because blacks, I mean, Jews don't like blacks. They only just do it to the extent that they can use them. Yeah, some Shvartza moving in in his territory. Yeah, he'd be more than happy if this were happening to some actress who was not under his contract, right? Who was not under management. And in fact, he probably would have uh, would have paid to televise it if it were if it were some other white woman. Would have been more than happy to uh, see it take place. Yeah, and and well, it depends. I mean, it's again, it's at this time where Jews would have liked to have done that, but just like Jews would love to put child pornography on like cable television right now but they can't and back then they could not quite get there with this but they wanted to push the boundaries just like goldenson tried to do in 1953 just four years before and what happened no sponsors of the show they spent twenty thousand dollars on the pilot i don't know what the conversion of that is in 2020 dollars is a lot of money twenty thousand dollars is a lot of money but they tried to do this kind of thing and they weren't quite there yet but Davis served as a really great vehicle uh, for getting there. But when Cohn found out that they were planning to get engaged, the story goes is that uh, he, he, you know, is connected to the Chicago land mob. Now is this Tony Soprano and, uh, you know, <laughs> Arthur and everybody else from the Sopranos, James? No, it's like Mickey Cohen and a bunch of other <laughs> Jewish mafia members. And they threatened uh, they threatened Davis and they said they were going to break both of his legs and put out his other eye if he didn't go marry a black woman right away. Now, that's the key thing where people are like, whoa, this guy, this Jew is coming in and doing base stuff and, you know, stopping interracial marriage. It's like, no, he's telling this black in no uncertain terms that he needs to stay in his lane and go marry a black woman so that there is no temptation for him to go out and continue ruining the careers of these potential million, multi-million dollar investments like Rita Hayworth, Anita Louise, and just about everybody else. And that's a good point about them being concerned about potential pushback because this still wasn't popular at the time, right? There was outrage, in fact, when people found out that he was planning to marry Kim Novak. So they were trying to thread a needle with optics and, and with how far they wanted to push all at once. And uh, yeah, probably discovered that the pushback was a little bit too much at the time in in the year when they were trying to do this. But uh, so, I mean, this is still an objective they wanted to work towards, and as it would turn out, they would try again very shortly thereafter. Yeah, they, they tried again shortly thereafter. And so Davis paid dancer Loray White, black woman, somewhere between ten and $25,000 to marry him. And he married her. He followed the direction that he was given. And he becomes so inebriated at the wedding that he attempted to strangle <laughs> Loray White Typical, you know, black guy, James, en route to their wedding suite. And they were divorced a year later. So, yeah, this guy had some kind of a meltdown. You know, the, it's kind of funny. You know, this is this is kind of what a fag would do, actually. And he sort of, like, fits the fits the description for all Especially of Especially one who's, like, shorter than his wife. And yeah. 
Yeah, look at the photos of them. Very odd. She does not look thrilled to be there. No, she doesn't look thrilled to be there. I mean, it's like, as much as... So if people know that this guy is dating out there doing the bit with... So that's the thing. It's like, if this guy is known as a homosexual, and these were rumors that people would be talking about, even in 1950s Hollywood, 1960s Hollywood, people would know that Sammy Davis Jr. was involved with gay Eddie Cantor and other homosexuals, and especially Jews. They would know what the shot is with this guy. And they would see this guy starting to date white women, and they would get angry. Of course, this is this is my theory, of course, but this is one reason why you think they would get angry. It's it's not just about like black, you know, messing up white uh woman investment in the movie business. It's also this guy's a fag, and they see what he's trying to do, and they're ruining the investment as well, which is kind of interesting when you think about it because a, he was not really interested in in actual, you know. In, in on one hand, you could say, well, yeah, it's it's a pretty common theme that like black men like white women. So what? Like n- more news at eleven. But when you consider that this guy was of questionable sort of sexual persuasion, it's like, well, what's his angle? Well, we know what the angle is. It's to normalize interracial marriage. So that's when they form the Rat Pack. It's like, okay, how do we take this guy that? for which there's a lot of pushback, this black Jew, and get him sort of mainstreamed and in the hearts and minds of everybody in America. And you have Davis, who is a talented singer, along with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, who is Jewish, Peter Lawford, who is the brother-in-law of John F. Kennedy. They get together, and initially Sinatra wanted to call it the Klan, (laughs) but (laughs) Davis uh, voiced his opposition, saying that it reminded people of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so they decided to call it a summit instead. And then I guess they were all playing cards at Humphrey Bogard and Lauren Bacall, a.k.a. Betty Joan Persky, a.k.a. Lauren Weinstein, oh, <laughs> Lauren no. Weinstein, Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Classic American cinema, huh, James? Yeah, right. More like classic Belarusian cinema, Belarusian Jewish cinema. Uh, but yeah, Lauren Bacall. I guess walked into the room and said that they all look like a pack of rats and that's how <laughs> they became it's like wow pots really calling the kettle uh, you know but <laughs> I guess you have to know one faces. to see one yeah well you pointed out that her father was uh that Lauren Bacall's father you know it's not just enough that she's a Weinstein I mean, she's re- these people are related to everybody aren't they oh yeah she's a blood relative uh, of Shimon Perez by descent <laughs> yeah who was born Shimon Shizmon Persky um, and then renamed Perez. So interesting. But uh, yeah, so more more sort of Jewish stuff about Davis uh, and these connections. He was uh, filming Porgy and Bess in 1959 and he told the studio head Samuel Goldwyn that he would not work on Yom Kippur and uh, Davis, Sinatra and Martin performing on stage. Sinatra says, I've got to go catch a train soon. Davis quips, what are you complaining about? I've got to go to a bar mitzvah. <laughs> so, constantly putting forward this idea that anybody can be Jewish. It's just a religion. That's another aspect of this. Yeah. One day, one day on the golf course with entertainer Jack Benny, he was asked what his handicap was. Davis, handicap? I'm a one-eyed Negro Jew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a crackhead. Uh, American Jewish historian David Kaufman notes... Sammy was a one-eyed Negro Jew appearing together on the same stage as the Rat Pack. 
It was a very powerful statement of inclusion. He was one of the boys. It was precisely Davis's combination of being black and Jewish that made him such an iconic touchstone. In an email to the journal, Kaufman said, These two outsider groups are arguably the most representative minorities in the American historical experience, and inarguably, together they have been the most essential contributors to the American popular culture, a culture which cannot be imagined without Jews who created Hollywood, the black who created jazz, the in create me asshole, the Jews dominated American <laughs> the Jew dominated American comedy, the blacks who dominated American sports, the Jews who monopolized the Broadway musical, the blacks who monopolized popular dance, and the many, many artists of both groups who gave us the American songbook. And oh what a songbook it is, James. Yeah. Yeah, more than any other group have created American popular culture. That's very a very revealing statement. One, about what he thinks American popular culture is. But two, this is something that I wish more people could see. I wish more people could see Kaufman, David Kaufman, talking like this. And him coming out and saying, admitting that, and confirming once and for all the suspicion people have, that yes, Hollywood was created by Jews. Yes, uh, Jews created... Uh, this style of American comedy. Dude. Yes, they, they did Broadway. The, the two most representative minorities in the American historical experiment experience. Well, he's not wrong. I mean, he's not wrong about that. Jews have shoehorned blacks into everything, and Jews have sort of weaseled their way into everything by appearing white. And then they, then they got in the front door and they opened it up for blacks. I mean, this has just been lather, rinse, repeat over and over. But yeah, I would love for people to see this, too. A monopoly, especially with like words like monopolized, dominated, <laughs> monopolized, dominated. It's like, yeah, they have. And isn't look at the absolute state of American entertainment today. It's just yeah, the, the one lie he's telling here is that these groups achieve these things through the same means and that had to go through the same processes, which isn't the case. These black achievements were made with the help of Jews. Right, they're all of Jewish, these black achievements. They're Jewish achievements. I mean, the Christmas song, the famous Sammy Davis Jr. Christmas song, was written by Mel Torme, who's a Russian yeah. Jew. And he's a Russian Jew who wrote Davis's entire California Suite album. So, you know, I mean, and you know, we could do a whole deep dive on Jewish Christmas music and the intricate details there, but I mean, literally, these hit songs written for G Sammy right. the Jew Sammy Davis Jr. to sing were written by a Jew. Right, but like popular dance, like they monopolize popular dance. Well, why? Because that's what Jewish television channels put on television and right. told you was popular dance. American sports, who owns those teams? Right, blacks who created jazz. Well, that's really not even true that they did. Uh, that's that's kind of a lie. But, you know, it's all of these things. And freeform jazz is, of course, a Jewish uh, art style. So, yeah, yeah and if like you all of these... And if you watch the Ken Burns documentary on country music, you'd be inclined to believe that the origins of country music were all black people. <laughs> like, and Ken Burns is, I think, either married. To, I don't think he's Jewish, but I know that there's a Jewish connection with Ken Burns that we found, and I can't yeah. remember. But. Yeah, they want you to believe that jazz, like, started with John Coltrane, which just isn't true. Right. They want you to think country music and bluegrass and all of that started with, like, mammy and black people play you know it's like it's all yeah, like, <laughs> it's all ancient irish music is where it all originated from yes blacks have yes. nothing to do with it yes it's all celtic it's all celtic in origin yeah that's yeah. true 
Yeah, so so yeah, so th- this guy is really ramping things up here with the Rat Pack. He's very popular. His career is taking off. You know, he's the he's the the best golem that they've ever made. And you know, this woman Kim Novak, you know, he he was they were ordered. I mean, she was ordered by the studio and kept under lock and key. I mean, Harry Cohn owned her, and you know, that's that's pretty much how that went. And so. You know, this guy needed to find another white woman that he could, uh, you know, latch onto and, and continue to do this bit about normalizing interracial marriage. And so there's also the element of Sammy Davis Jr. wanting everything that Frank Sinatra had as well, meaning like lots of houses, money, women, and specifically white women. You know, this is part of the confusing aspect of, I guess, a julato. Um, he's a mulatto, you know, ethnically a mulatto, but technically a julato, being very confused and, you know, wanting white women, wanting black women, adopting black children and all kinds of other things. Uh, but he discovers this Swedish girl named May Britt Wilkins. And the Jews discovered her, too. They brought her from Sweden to Hollywood uh, for, of course, the usual purposes. But Davis intercepts her and uh Actually meets her in the same year that he strangled and then divorced Lorraine White. So wow. it's kind of funny, right? Just right away had to move on to the next thing. And so he announced a very public engagement, though, which tells you, you know, this guy, he's not afraid of what Harry Cohn said. He's just like, I'm going to do this. And I have now the backing of the Rat Pack to do this. And nobody can stop me. Harry Cohn be damned. He's not going to send anybody to my house because Frank Sinatra's got all these connections with the mafia, too. So. He does this, and then the studio immediately cancels Brit's contract. Now, this caused a major dust-up in the United States. It was not just the summer of 1960 in which John F. Kennedy was running for president. Uh, It was also, you know, you had, as you mentioned before, media news networks were all sort of pushing blacks, pushing black Interests on people. Civil rights was becoming a more prominent thing. Things were starting to brew. Um, And when this announcement about his marriage to May Britt came, uh, you had British, this is from the Smithsonian Magazine as well, British fascists picketed the theater where Davis was performing in London, booing and shouting and carrying signs saying, go home nigger and other racial slurs. <laughs> Davis told the press, I, you know, this is a familiar, you know, familiar theme holding signs that say that uh, while blinking back <laughs> tears that it was, uh, I mean, dude, Larry Ridgway, just, you know, this, yeah, <laughs> keeping, they, gave him the, they gave him the old West Bellamy treatment. Yeah. <laughs> go home. <laughs> well, while blinking back tears, oh God, that it was the most insane. This is this is the other component of Judaism that they don't mention that Davis likes. It's the perpetual victimhood and the power of that victimhood. Because blacks viewed themselves as relatively powerless at the time. But to become a Jew victim was a much more powerful statement, and Davis uses it to his advantage. Blinking back the tears, he said, that was the most savage racial attack I've ever come across. Of course, back in America, Davis and Britt were inundated with hate mail. Criticism came not only from white people, but also from black people, who had long accused Davis of race trading in articles with headlines, Is is Sammy ashamed he's a Negro? There were bomb threats at uh, theaters where Davis performed, and at the Lotus Club. Hmm, the Lotus Club, James? Hmm. The Lotus Lotus Club. Club. Wow, did somebody say Lotus Club? Mm, You know, John Lewis Darby and... Schofield and oh man, it's kind of kind of crazy. I know Samuel well, Untermeyer and yeah, yeah. Well, the American Nazi Party decided to pick it outside, 
Uh, but the audience inside gave Davis a standing ovation when he walked on the stage. That's what I would expect from the Lotus Club at this point. But it's it's kind of funny, um, inundated with hate mail. Uh, what was I going to say about, oh, the black people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why wouldn't black people be alienated by Sammy Davis Jr.? All of his friends are gay Jews. Like, I so far in this research, none of his close friends or associates are blacks. The last black he seems to have associated with or had a close relationship with was Will Mastin and his father. And, you know, then you start to, when you find out that this guy's a fag and we know how fags reproduce, you start to wonder, well, what were they doing to this guy before going to World War II? He was 18 when he went to World War II. And he was in show business in the mm-hmm. interwar period with Will Mastin, friend of his father's. Mm, what's going on there? Well, I guess we sort of have figured that out. Uh, unraveled that little piece of history. But the reason why this is important is because, again, 1960, JFK is running for the presidency. And apparently, this is rumor, maybe myth. I'm going to just take it at face value because there's sort of a there's a uh, substantial track record that goes with this, is that Frank Sinatra was apparently asked by JFK and RFK. Now, I would find it more likely that Langford, who is a brother-in-law of RFK, would have been doing the asking. But if Frank Sinatra is kind of the head of the Rat Pack and he's a guy that Sammy looked up to, yeah, they asked Sinatra to tell Davis to wait until after the election to announce uh, any wedding plans. But, of course, he announced the engagement in June of 1960 and caused a uh, a shit-stirring, uh, crazy... Uh, fa- well, actually, I take that back. He he caused a very normal reaction. The, the media frames it as the public going apeshit, but no, the, the guy that went apeshit is Sammy Davis Jr. announcing that he's marrying a white woman from Sweden. <laughs> He's the yeah. guy that went apeshit. the The American public that said "Go home, nigger." Like that's like that's well, that was actually the London public. That was a British, um, yeah, American and British public. Yeah, you know, and blacks who are like, "I do not like this." So, yeah, imagine being Jews and trying to get over the barrel of interracial marriage, knowing that it wasn't just a problem that they had to resolve with whites, but like blacks as well, right? I mean, it's just, and, well, and, and not just that; it's a perfectly natural feeling like just don't do this they've had to work overtime for decades in a very unnatural way and who knows somebody might listen to this program way out into the future what are the go what do the tv commercials look like in 2020 these days james <laughs> i mean what, what's the trajectory been like for this stuff yeah i think the most fitting one is the um Asurion home electronics insurance commercial that shows a <laughs> highly diverse cast of people uh having their lives ruined by their tech breaking and now you, too, can finance a repair plan uh, for your uh, in-home mulatto tech with, uh, with a new company with oh uh, easy payments. Dude, it's such a ripoff, that stuff, uh, Shurian and everything else. And, I mean, if just a, little, just a little tip. I was on the, well, just a little tip. If you get an Apple product, do not buy the phone insurance because Apple Care will cover your Apple product. They will try to sell you phone insurance anyway through a Shurian. But it's just a waste of money. It's no what is it now? Like nine ninety nine a month or whatever it is on your contract. I mean, you have Apple Apple covers. Actually, they'll let you replace your phone like three times, up to three times. Mm. So you can be like a total like uh, pumpkin spice latte cracked phone screen <laughs> type of person, and you know yeah. they'll they'll do that. But no, it's all of these things. Like you go to Home Home Depot now, and I never go to Home Depot because fuck Bernie Marcus. But you go to like any of these big box uh, retailers. And they're in addition to offering payment plans 
they also want to roll insurance policies into your payment plans for your product. Right. So you end up paying three or four times the value of the product over the life of the payment plan and insurance that you don't need because it's covered by warranty. So, yeah. Oh, and the fine print on the deductible for the insurance. It's like, oh, yeah, pay nine ninety nine per month for this insurance on your $300 product, and then the deductible is like $17,000. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it's like 100 bucks. It's usually like $99. It's like, why would I do this? Well, because right. they want you to pay a 7,000% markup on product. But anyway, they also wanted you to pay for the Rat Pack product, which sort of pivoting back to this. Uh, but the reason why Frank Sinatra asked through, uh, oh, sorry, Sinatra asked Davis uh, to sort of postpone this and postpone the wedding, he might have, but he didn't postpone the announcement because it, it, it caused this reaction very normal reaction. Um, the Rat Pack had also been playing in every major city as part of Kennedy's campaign. So to have the guy, the black guy, the candy man on the Rat Pack go out and, you know, do this pretty egregious thing with this white woman, you know, do, what? how did Kennedy feel about this? I don't know. He probably didn't personally like it, but, you know, it's it's kind of like they they were still worried about optics. This was not something that you could... You know, he would have a lot of trouble, and he was in a very close race and needed uh, Southern Democrats uh, to to vote for him. And this would not be a way to win the election with with having this guy. Now, Davis was supposed to sing at his inauguration, um, and that uh, that got blown the fuck out, too. Uh, three days before the inauguration, Kennedy uh, was like his secretary called Davis even after Davis had like a special suit made. He's like, I got me a new suit. <laughs> and Kennedy's secretary is like, yeah, nah, you guys, uh, you know, because he got married on 11, 13, 1960. So I don't know what election day was in 1960. It doesn't matter. It would have been after the, the election he gets married, but before the inauguration. So he, you know, this guy couldn't wait. He couldn't wait more than a week. And Kennedy was like, yeah, nah, get the fuck out of here. But, um, Apparently, Brit, not only does he marry this Jewish girl, sorry, he marries this Swedish girl, sort of Freudian slip there, she becomes Jewish to do it. So not only does he do interracial marriage, he gets a Swede to convert to Judaism. This is a win-win for them, James. And uh, Rabbi William M. Kramer is the one who married them uh, together. And this is what you were alluding to before. So he gets this interracial marriage with this woman into most of America who probably didn't know about the Jew Jewish conversion, she's a white woman married to a black man. The symbol has been established. And so they immediately cast Davis in all of these interracial marriage roles, including the Broadway adaptation of Golden Boy, in which Davis was cast as a black man married to a white woman. Um, <laughs> Golden Boy? Golden Son? What's Golden Son? <laughs> yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, and this was important because you have to understand the political context of the time. What else was going on? You start to have these legal battles in the early 1960s, one of which was Loving versus Virginia, uh, which culminated in these anti-miscegenation laws in all United States, in all the states in the U.S., being ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So it was very important that Jews had an interracial symbol that was popular with the American public in a very prominent role with a white woman and on plays and everything else. To shoehorn in the next phase of where they wanted to go. Now, this is the mind-blowing thing. Probably a lot of people knew this, but you know the Virginia's for lovers bit 
like that's their state motto. Right. Virginia's for lovers. It's on their it's license plate too, right? It's because of this. It's for loving versus Virginia. I didn't realize that. I don't know why I didn't realize that. Maybe everybody knows this and I'm not the only I'm the only one who didn't. But yeah, when you see that Virginia is for lover shit prominently featured like all over the place. Yeah, that's that's a that is a sort of celebration of the end of the miscegenation laws in Virginia. Um so yeah. Fun. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Yeah, memorialize yeah. that on every state piece of uh piece of merchandise. <laughs> every <laughs> piece of state memorabilia. Yeah, I just thought it was like, oh, this is a play. I thought it was like a campaign for people to like go into the uh what do they call those mountains in Virginia? The Shenandoah. Just go on vacation in the Shenandoah with your lover, right? It's a place to go on a honeymoon. You know, all these states do these like sort of advertising about come to Mississippi and gamble and like hang out by like the brackish Gulf of Mexico. Like, you know, it's a fun place to go. Virginia is for lovers. Well, it's for blacks and whites to get mm. together and make oh. a lot. Oh, mm. so they had one biological child together, May Britt and uh, and Sammy Davis, this Tracy Davis. But then, James, this is so weird. They have one mulatto child together to sort of, I guess, check that box in terms of the, uh, you know, interracial marriage, then create interracial child so that it was actually a real thing. They consummated the marriage. But then they adopted two black boys. Why would they do adoption? What's what's going on there? What do you think? Sammy Davis just didn't want to do, you know, didn't want to keep doing the bit. You know, they have to have black children. Why would you adopt two children? It's so weird. And then they divorced. Yeah. Especially yeah. at a time when that wouldn't have been normal too. No. This was this was a, a very rare thing to do. To adopt children, yeah. And well, then, to adopt children of an of another race when you had a white mother. Well, and when you were so hell bent on, you know, having an interracial marriage, it's like why are you adopting black children? Yeah. Like, what's, what's Isn't the point on? of the marriage to have children? Or is the point of the marriage to send a message? Yeah. It seems like it was because they they didn't it didn't last that long uh, because he allegedly had an affair with this Lola Falana, this black. But it's like, mm, yeah, I don't know. And then after that marriage imploded, according to this, he turned to alcohol, drugs, cocaine, amyl nitrate and uh, experimented briefly with Satanism. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a fact check on that. He has been experimenting with Satanism <laughs> since he converted to Judaism in 1953. <laughs> so. Uh, and pornography. He started experimenting with that. It's kind of funny, We're implying that this isn't his shot like the entire time. You know, when he's like locking himself in penthouse suites in Vegas with Elvis Presley for days at a time. You know, this guy's experimenting with these things? Oh, really? Hmm, interesting. No, they're just writing. They're just hard at work writing their next hit. <laughs> yeah, called In the Ghetto, right? <laughs> I think that was the <laughs> song that they did together, In the Ghetto. But yeah, I mean... And you can see just by looking at Sammy Davis, you know, and the idea that this, that they say this di- guy died of esophageal cancer or whatever, and that's eventually what kills him. Um, and of course, yes, he did smoke four packs of cigarettes a day, but, you know, maybe this guy just had AIDS, right? I mean, maybe that's really sort yeah. of the Roy Cohn bit. I have These are the pre-prep days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you look at him, you can sort of see. So he gets snubbed by Kennedy twice. Um, at, yeah, so in the 1960s, he gets heavily involved in the civil rights movement. Um, he goes to, uh, the Martin Luther King's March on Washington in 1963, raises the equivalent of 
$6 million for the NAACP um, and King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Now, that's interesting because, you know, he, again, he's being used as this, he's part of the golem, right? He had no real interest in black friends or any other thing, and then suddenly that's what he gets involved in. Um, but he also becomes the first black to sing at the Copacabana nightclub in New York. Uh, he was a headliner at the Frontier Casino in Vegas. Uh, and so this is kind of this era in the 1960s where Davis, along with the Rat Pack, would intentionally book shows at places that prohibited blacks. Vegas was a place that had Jim Crow in place. And so they would intentionally play shows. And then they were starting to refuse to work at places. So they would create a very popular show and make that the lifeblood of a lot of these casinos and other performance um, halls around the country. And then they would say, yeah, no, we're not going to come and play and let you make a bunch of money off of us unless you, you know, let us in and let Sammy stay in a hotel with everybody else, Mm -hmm. you know, where he can do cocaine and have gay sex and all the other things that he wants to do. (laughs) Why do you have to put Sammy in a boarding house across town? Right now we have to send Arthur Silber to go pick him up. You know, we got Jews running around all night, driving blacks back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Just put him in the flamingo, you know? So, oh man. But uh, yeah, so they refused to do this. And there were a lot of places in America at this time too. A lot of music clubs that did not want Jews either. Right. In, in in America in the 1950s, most country clubs were no blacks and no Jews because they know what kind of problems come. And what they do, is they create Sammy Davis, Jewish and black. They have Joey Bishop, Jewish. And then they take somebody really popular like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. It's like the Finkel think, right? James, it's two truths and a lie. You like Sinatra, you like Dean Martin. Well, you're also going to like Sammy Davis Jr. and Joey Bishop as well, two Jews and a black, right? So it's kind of funny. They take things that people really like, and they do this with TV series today. I mean, people, when they do sort of analysis on movies and TV, they'll talk about like how series usually start off really well, like The Sopranos mm-hmm. or Game of Thrones or like whatever it is. And then it just becomes really gay over time and the rat pack started off as a thing that you know was a very popular you know performing act and then they started imposing themselves on people along racial lines in the middle of the of the uh, civil rights era and you know his career started to decline um they remained popular in vegas but these guys started to fall off a little bit uh 1967 nbc broadcast a musical variety special featuring nancy sinatra the daughter of frank sinatra uh, titled Movin' with Nancy, and this is where Sinatra and Davis kiss each other on the mouth. And this is, again, this first kiss. Uh, locks himself in hotel room with Elvis Presley in the 60s, you know, spending a lot of time in Vegas. 1969, he goes to Israel. There's this picture of him kissing the, the wailing wall there. So, you know, as his career goes into decline, you know, he starts... Maybe if I go kiss the wailing wall, it'll be this magical thing again. Just like if I lose my left eye and talk to Eddie Cantor, I have magically a career. It's like, come on, guy. You don't see what you're being used for here? Apparently not, James, because it's so funny, the parallels here between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon. I mean, we've talked a lot about them with uh, Roy Cohn and and that whole history and Roger Stone and, and the origins of all that. But when you think about Donald Trump and blacks... And then you look at what Richard Nixon did with Sammy Davis Jr. and getting him to vacate the Democratic Party. This is the black sit of the 1970s, James, right? 
he he becomes close friends with Richard Nixon. I mean, how? Because of gay Jews? That seems to be the common theme between the two of these guys. And he publicly endorses Richard Nixon in the 1972 Republican National Convention. This was extremely alienating to the black community. Not only that, but David Nixon invited Davis and his wife Alto Vice or Alto Vice, whatever fucking whatever name that is. Not a normal name, not a human name. It's a man animal name. Um, <laughs> to sleep in the White House in 1973. So Nixon not only he doesn't just use him as an election prop. He does the trumpet with this guy, bringing him into the White House. And this is the first time any African-American had been invited to sleep over. And they slept in the Lincoln bedroom. Oh, how isn't that just nice? Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so but if course, only there were a Hamilton bedroom. Yeah, even, right. Even better. Yeah. The uh, well, it's the the Hamilton slave shop shack out back, probably. Uh, Davis <laughs> later said he regretted supporting Nixon because surprise, surprise, Nixon made promises about civil rights that he did not keep. He then later supported Jesse Jackson's 1984 president uh, campaign for president, does a bunch of cameos, doesn't have much of a career because Hollywood is not just Jewish, but they don't like Richard Nixon. He, you know, he picked the wrong, he bet the wrong horse here. Like his career is in decline and, you know, he goes to Israel and ends up supporting Richard Nixon. Interesting timeline all within a couple of years of each other. And then, you know, he probably got paid a lot of money by the Republicans to come out and support their campaign, help Nixon get elected. And then, you know, what does he do when Nixon is impeached? I mean, what's what's this black guy going to do at that point? Like, he just, you know, dives headfirst into cocaine, alcohol, and ends up with cirrhosis, dies in 1990. And, I mean, this guy, like, for a guy who did so much for Jewish domination through the destruction of white marriage, right? Interracial marriage was, was the was the uh, bludgeon that this guy used. I mean, the last check that this guy wrote bounced this guy. <laughs> he was the personification of the American dream. James, he lived in a mansion owned by Jewish banks, could not afford the mortgage. And he tried to dance his way out. And he was surrounded by so many good friends, James. They all went into his home and took his memorabilia, his jewelry and his artwork. And in the words of Frank Sinatra, also riding high in April shot down in May, uh, this guy really, I mean, dude, he died. His estate was estimated to have been worth $4 million, which would have gone to this Alto Vis Davis. But dude, this guy owed $5.2 million to the IRS, including interest and penalties, which was over $7 million. So this guy died with literally nothing and all of his quote unquote friends, like to, just robbed his ass on the way out the door. I mean, this is just... You're not a, you know, and the the best Jews can do is they do a fundraiser for him in Vegas. They settle with the IRS, but like you know, and they from time to time they'll do like Sammy Davis document say uh, documentaries and whatever. But these people got nothing. No wonder Tracy Tracy Davis just like you know had a short illness, you know, a couple weeks ago. Mm. It's just like, and they don't even mention his his other kids, Manny. Da- oh yeah, Manny Davis, <laughs> one of the adopted kids. It's just like. Uh, my mom was Catholic and my dad was a black Jew. Like, I don't know what I should be. It's like, I oh, just yeah. feel bad for these people. Yeah, no, it really messed him up. And add to the fact he was adopted. Like, it was it was just a train wreck for him. And he didn't even get the payoff of like having a big inheritance from it. And Sammy Davis is one of the guys who you are, like, if you're watching 
um, like satellite TV, like the basic cable or something late at night. And they do those albums for boomers with where it's like the compilation greatest hits album. And it like shows the scrolling list of songs on the screen. And it's like for only 1995, you too can own this piece of music history. Like Sammy Davis is in that tier now, along with like Dolly Parton. <laughs> Yeah. Right, where it's like buy the collector's edition greatest hits album for thirty dollars plus shipping and handling, and yeah, it's it's actually, I mean, it's not sad because of who this guy was, total scumbag. He deserved it, but it's uh, so fitting, really. I well, mean, being in debt more than you own at your it, death. It's not as bad as Sebastian Gorka doing commercials for Boomer Naturals face masks, but you know, I guess, yeah, but it's pretty bad. I mean. Imagine being Manny Davis now that Tracy's dead and just living on the royal, the, like the minuscule royalties that are coming in from this. Cause there's no nest egg. There's no mass of cash that's sitting around. Like the sale of everything that he had left, like went to pay the IRS cause he just mm-hmm. wasn't going to pay his taxes. And it's just, you know, I'm not saying, Oh yeah, better be a good goy and pay your taxes, but it's kind of funny. This guy just, this is typical. And, you know, nobody who who who's going to give a shit? Nobody gives a shit. Not even the, the Jews that stood him up. They don't want this. They don't care about this guy. They used him. And that was it. And that was the end of it. So how did it how did it feel to, like, convert to Judaism, Sammy? I mean, was that did that end up being did that make you uh, sort of immortal? No, it didn't. You, you know, you sort of just faded away into obscurity. And yeah, he cargo culted the religion thinking along with it. He would cargo cult the, the networking and the, the support. Uh, structure and the the in group uh, ability to work with other people that they have, but it's like no, they they knew from the start. They always knew he wasn't a real Jew, yeah, and well, he was not and, rewarded like a real. And they Jew didn't like they didn't really like that he did that either. I, I have a feeling that that was part of the animus with Harry Cohn as well, in in sort of making the threats against Davis. But there were there were the more sort of Tick and Olin side of the Jew house that Sammy was aligned with that were fine with him larping as a Jew as long as he could be used in some way. I'm sure they're, you know, like, if you ask Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, how he felt about, how he felt about, like, how he feels about blacks converting to Jews, I mean, eh, it's not going to be something that those guys (laughs) like very much. Um, But, yeah, I mean, in a fitting end to all of this, though, do you remember this Universal Studios fire where all of their stuff, like all of these artists, had their original materials? Yeah. Yeah. Sammy Davis, all of his original material, totally destroyed in the fire in 2000. So, just wiped away completely, Sammy. I mean, you know, just nothing left. You know, could have uh, could have stood against. Actually, the real power for Sammy Davis would have been to stand against Jewish power. But he would have been, you know, this guy would survive. This guy wouldn't have made it five minutes. He would have been just over. So, <laughs> and we, we would have been better off. Maybe the Rat Pack would have been white at that point. They'd still have to get rid of Joey Bishop, but... But no, like Frank, it's not like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin were based. Dean Martin was a little bit better than, than Sinatra, but no, Sinatra was just like total fucking Jewish apparatchik as well. So, yeah, Bing Crosby was was big on integration and civil rights as well. So yeah, so yeah, there you have it. I had no idea about a lot of this stuff, but when you dive down the rabbit hole on these things, it's sort of it's kind of funny. The Blacksit thing was the biggest thing for me. It's just like, of course, of course. Of course he was doing this shit for Nixon. Of course this is how they did this. Of course he was casting all these roles on television to push this stuff on people. Because how do you get? How do you get from ninety six percent disapproval to you know people just accepting this? And ultimately they did accept it. But yeah, 
This is how it was done. And this isn't the only way it was done, but this is one of the... Uh, Belafonte was another famous uh, black that married a white woman, but Sammy Davis Jr. was the one who did it in such a just loud uh, fashion, pushing it in everybody's face and forcing people sort of to accept it. And Jews were happy to take his popularity and leverage it to get it in everybody's face. Like I said, they could put Sammy Davis <laughs> and his interracial wife in your living room on a glowing screen without your permission. And they did over and over every night. And people liked it. People couldn't turn it off. It's just this, I don't know, this sort of like opium effect of the TV screen, even in black and white at like whatever, whatever awful resolution that would have been back then. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 120p. Yeah. Something like that. So anyway, I hope everybody has a good rest of their Sunday. And we'll talk to you guys on Thursday. Catch you guys later. Hi, this is Ron Paul. I am a former congressman, physician, and presidential candidate. The world is in turmoil. Things like Ebola, earthquakes, wars, and famines are commonplace. As Americans, we are largely sheltered from these events. However, in parts of the world, just having enough food is a huge problem. For some of us, there is the nagging thought that we may not always have it so good. So we keep some food on hand just in case. My family and I have found a product that helps us do this better. It's a home freeze dryer from Harvest Right. With it, we eat healthier and store a little more food. We freeze dry everything we love to eat, and it lasts up to 25 years. Who knows what the future will bring? One thing's certain, my family and I will always have food on the table. To learn more, go to HarvestRight.com or call 800-763-5999. That's HarvestRight.com or 800-763-5999. You're listening to Resolution Radio. ResolutionRDO.com. There was a mighty nation blessed above all of creation. Charlie Daniels, he's always loved America. He's always defended the Second Amendment. Let me let me just read a little thing here from Agenda 21. The American system of justice must be changed to conform to the rest of the world. Individual rights will have to take a back seat to the collective. Well, you know what the next boom's going to be, don't you? It's going to be coming after your gun. Oh, yeah. I tell you, it ain't going to sit well down my way at all. It ain't going to sit well. Do you ever wonder what happened to America? It's time to ride, boys. We need a thousand bottles of beers. When I was a boy, it was okay to be proud of the flag, heritage, mom, and apple pie, and beef. What's for supper? Revelation, dawn of global government, theatrical screenings on demand, DVDs now available, starring Alex Jones, Charlie Daniels, Special Ops General, Jerry Boykin. Want to shed some tears over the red, white, and blue? Revelation, the movie, dot info. Let's fix it.